tetragrammaton. talking to you because I'm a fan and I'm not a fan of basketball, mm. but I'm interested in coaching and I'm interested in people doing their best That's work. what you do, you coach. Yeah. It feels like that and I wanted to compare notes. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, entry. Do you play an instrument, Rick? Barely. What's a barely that you do? Guitar barely, Good. like punk rock level, you know. <laughs> what music did you like growing up? First was the Beatles yeah. from young childhood. Beatles and the Monkees, British Invasion, that yeah. whole, and I, you know, when I was three years old to, I don't know, seven or eight years old, that that was the music that spoke to me. And, oh, then yeah. after, and whatever singles, like whatever seven inch singles were coming out at the time that were, you know, hits on the radio, some of them spoke to me. And then it was comedy albums for a period of time. I only listened to comedy albums, like, George Carlin and um, Cheech and Chong and um, Bob Newhart, uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, it was just a whole wave of comedy that I really got into. And then it was Hard Rock was next, which would be like Aerosmith, ACDC, <laughs> Ted Nugent. Then it was punk rock. And then it was hip hop. Where did you grow up in Long Island? Long Beach. It's oh, like an hour outside of Manhattan. Oh, no, I, South I know Shore. Long Beach very well. I mean, you know, one of my best friends, uh, Danny Rudolph, grew up in Long Beach. Uh, good friends with Billy Crystal and uh, his brother. His brother was my art teacher in oh, really? school, in uh, junior high school. I read his book. Joel he, Crystal. Yeah, I read his book. He has a book that he wrote. Joel uh, did. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He was my uh, art teacher. It, he sent it to me. But I used to go out to Long Beach and play because Larry Brown and um, Doug Moe were basketball players from that era and age, and they were a little older than I am, but we used to play out there in, in, in Long, Long Beach. High School? No, no, on the open courts, on the outside courts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. It's a group of guys that would go out there. They were Nets and Knicks that would get together in the summertime. Nice. And play. Yeah, yeah, it's nice with the sea air. It's, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, great place. To grow I have up. a friend named Jake. He coaches soccer in New York City. He's won nineteen championships soccer. He's out here now. He comes out to California in uh, February, March, and uh, he grew up in Long Long Beach. And his friend of Danny Rudolph, my my buddy, that was uh, the passed away a couple of years ago, and. Uh, has great stories. Still goes out there in the summertime. And uh, my coach, Red Holzman, lived in Seahurst, uh, you know, which is yeah. right there. And they yeah, had a yeah. cabana or whatever in yeah. Long Beach, you know. Nassau yeah. County. Everybody, everybody was at the beach in the July and August. So um, the other uh, question I wanted to ask you was that uh, you went to NYU. Mm-hmm. Did you aspire to go to NYU? Did you want to go in the city and go to college? No, I, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to go to the best school I got into, and the best school I got into was University of Chicago. Yeah. And I thought that's where I was going to go. And then I'm an only child, 
very tight with my parents, like tight knit family. And it just felt like NYU was a better choice because it was closer. And and it changed my life really because I happened to be in New York when hip hop was starting. Had I been at the University of Chicago, my life would have been very different. So again, crazy because my parents were all about education yet they were cool with NYU instead of the University of Chicago, which was not obvious. Yeah, University of Chicago is a great school. Great school. Yeah. From the beginning of seeing the game till now, what have been the biggest changes you've seen? Well, the three-point line changed the game dramatically. When did that happen? The unification of the American basketball, ABL, ABA, there was an ABL at one time, but the ABA and the NBA, when the two leagues united, the three-point line came with the ABA, and uh, there were maybe six times it would be shot. Sometimes there was not a three-point shot taken. And then Houston had a team with guys that could shoot three-pointers towards the end of Rick Barry's career, and... Uh, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich career. So they started exploiting it a little bit, and uh, then it took off where they're, you know. But in the finals, even in the 90s when we played Utah, they were the least three-point shooting team in the league. They took 13, 14 a game. Not teams take 30. It might Just be because culturally number. they never got into it? There wasn't a good shot. It wasn't a high-percentage shot. Yeah. They also had a terrific interior player named Malone, Carl yeah, Malone. Yeah. So there was there was that part of it. But at some point, uh, you know, the Europeans kind of exploited it and people bought into the fact that me, you know, two three-point shots is six points. It takes three of those baskets to make six points. It's a difference that makes sense. So that's the way it started and it continued and it was it was good. It was a good deal. But what happened that bothers the basketball people that enjoy the game is the rest of the game kind of fell apart. So guys walk and travel and don't know how to pivot. They can't dribble the ball correctly. And all these things that you see also are happening in baseball and happened in football. You know, they lowered the mound in baseball. That was back in the 60s because they started hitting. Guys were not hitting 300. So they dropped the mound. And then the fences were like, Polo Field was like 460 in New York City. They, the fences now are smaller than I, than the baseball field I grew up in with that 306 at center field and 298 down the lines. Some major league teams are like, those are high flies. They're knocking and them be, out of the park. Because the, ex, the game seems more exciting for yeah. the fans if there's more, right. more points. I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not. But you know, three-point shooting. Yeah, I went to game this week. I go to game a year. I went, one game a year. Well, I went one last year. I don't yeah. know if I went one the year before. I don't think I went one the COVID uh, lockout. But typically year. one a year. Yeah, there's something will bring me there. I so I went to the game, and one team hadn't made a three-point shot in like like eight minutes, and I was there with my grandkids, and the boys were like. Wow, they can't shoot at all. They're not shooting at all. I said, they'll get, they'll find a way. There's, someone will get hot, and then they'll get going. At some point, they'll start making them. But, yeah, it was, uh, 
the dearth. And so they're casting up these long shots and and the rebounds are long rebounds. So then the, the uh, opponent then can run because unfettered because there's no defense back. And so it's blown the game kind of wide open. And uh, it's become difficult for people and players that have watched the game evolve to enjoy this form of the game a lot. Some of the guys I coached, they're talented, Phil. They're really talented players. I know, but I'm not enjoying the games. Mm. Like, that's too bad. There's a new generation that'll like it. They'll like the game. So. Do you do you uh, still watch a lot of basketball or no? I don't. Tell me about that. When and did you stop immediately from the time you stopped coaching? No, I didn't. I watched some of the game evolve and decided. And they went into the lockout year, and they did something that was kind of wanky. They did a bubble down in Orlando, mm-hmm. and all the teams that could qualify mm-hmm. went down there and mm-hmm. stayed down there. Mm-hmm. No audience. And they had things on their back like, you know, Justice. And uh, yeah, I made a little funny thing like, uh, you know, Justice just went to the basket, and uh, equal opportunity just knocked him down. And uh, somebody, I had another name for a guy who has jersey in the back of a jersey, had some other slogan. So my grandkids thought that was pretty funny to to play up those names. So I I couldn't watch that. And then Lakers won, actually. They they won that year. And uh, Do you feel like it just made little of the game, like it made it like a sideshow? What do you think it was that turned you off? Well, it was... was, uh, they even had slogans on the floor, on the baseline. It was catering. It was trying to cater to an audience or trying to bring a certain audience into play. And it, they didn't know it was turning other people off, you know. Mm-hmm. People, people want to see sports as non-political. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had, we've had a lot of different type of uh, players that have, gone on to be like, you know, Bill Bradley was a senator, number of baseball players have been representatives and senators and political, but their politics stay out of the game. Yeah, it's not doesn't separate. need to be there. Yeah. Tell me about competition and the difference between playing to win and playing your best. Okay, so we had the term, we had the term. Play beyond your opponent and play beyond the refereeing. So you're not trying to understand the scoring or what the opponent's doing. You're just playing for your guys that are with you on the team and doing the things that create the best feeling for your group of guys. And when there's a bad call or there's something that goes against you and the referees, don't mind. That's not part of what you're doing. Right. You're you're just playing. Yeah. you're not involved in that. So, you know, some guys, I, you know, I actually got them to get like a rubber band and put it around their, you know, just snap the rubber band, bring yourself back. Present you moment. Know, I had this statement, one mind, one breath type of thing, you know, that we used to sit as a team, you know, before days of shoot around or, you know, sometimes even pre, uh, previous to a game, we just sit in quiet space. We knew what we had to do. There was no need to talk. Just be quiet and sit and get centered. 
So yeah, just trying to get guys to get centered and to leave all that noise behind sometimes really important. And were some more receptive to that than others? Oh yeah. Huh. You know, there's there's a lot of kids that have grown up in this generations, the last couple generations, that deal with attention deficit. There's, uh, you know, asthma is another thing, you know, that just prevent people from just being able to be really clear and and have a quiet, quiet space. Sometimes I have to take a player out and sit them down and just say, you know, this is a time just to be quiet. Don't just get yourself centered. Call a timeout. There's, uh, you know, the certain rule. It's a first uh, minute's yours. Go to the bench, towel off. Your teammates will talk to you. You can communicate among yourselves. When I step in, get up off the, the bench, join me in a circle. We'll talk about the next. We'll go out and do it. Give them the space to get themselves back and centered and whatever. And then I'd step in and they'd be up and ready to go after it. And teammates would be around them. And I could spend a minute with my staff and talk about what's going on. And we had one guy that was plotting everything, you know, just like your board there, mm-hmm. you know, a, a line sheet of paper and, you know, nine by 11 or whatever. And there are 25 plays in a quarter. What's happened in the last six or eight between the timeouts? Is there any, any trend that you want to talk about? And uh, you'll get input because my coaching staff, they each had a team. And so with, uh, you know, 30 teams and three coaches, 10 each. Usually there's some teams you play four, some teams in the East you play two. But it kind of balanced it off so they weren't overwhelmed. So they would do the prep and they would do the, the pregame preparedness. And then during the game, they would uh, talk about what's going on with the other team. When are they... When they bring in the subs, what's their post timeout thing that they like to go to? What do they do? So yeah, kind of get some information. Anything like this, this is something that worked against this player in the past. This is a weakness. Like pointing out things like weaknesses of other players. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a there's a certain uh, frame to that, and you know. One of the very difficult games that we had to play, seventh game in the series against Sacramento in 2002. Rick Fox, who was an alternate captain, came over and said, you know, Shaq and Kobe been carrying the load. It's, I got a guy I can take, you know. Let's get the ball to me and I'll, I'll see if I can't break some defense down or get some baskets for us with a little easier. So, yeah, he took... Uh, three possessions, six points, and you know we we kind of kept the momentum going. So yeah, they I like it when players volunteer and uh, help. <laughs> My coach, Red Holzman, timeout. All right, you motherfuckers, <laughs> you've been lazy out there. You're not getting out on the defense. You're letting guys catch the ball. You're not putting. You're not contesting shots. Let's get some bodies on bodies out there, da 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 da. Okay, what do you guys want to run? Dave, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do out there? Willis, you got someone you want to take? What do you guys want? Well, let's go inside to Willis. He hadn't touched the ball a couple times on the court, so you know, that was a 
gave a lot of freedom to the team. Defense? No, this is us doing everything together. This is a five-man operation. Offense? Who could, you know, so someone take off? So when I came to the Lakers, I was like, basketball's kind of like a jazz quintet. You know, one guy riffs off another guy and someone gets to play a little bit of a lead or whatever. That's kind of what, what happens in basketball. It's there, There's a lot of times in the, the offense I run, it's whoever gets open that's going to end up with the ball. It's not always going to be so-and-so that's going to have a... One of the guys is a, is a jock on jazz. How about Coltrane? Nope, not Coltrane. Coltrane, he wouldn't put that axe down. He had to play 40 minutes sometimes yeah. all by himself. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to have that happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's a famous thing with Miles Davis. Coltrane, put that fucking axe down. You've been playing 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a, quite a, that was a, that was maybe Miles Davis's best group, though. That quintet with uh, John Coltrane in it. I remember hearing you say that you like the team to play in four-four, like to play in rhythm. Yeah. Explain that to me. I want to. I want to picture that. Okay. So there's a certain beat that we like to play in. If you have the ball longer than two count, you're holding up the team. You either activate the ball, shoot it, dribble it, or pass it. But once you're beyond that level, something's stalling the organization out. Because the players are all in concert, moving together. And so if it gets beyond that two and the third beat, now their spacing's disoriented, their timing's off, and there's a certain rhythm that uh, has to go with it. So the passing was really like a rhythm thing. I call it communication. You communicate with each other by passing mm -hmm. the ball. Mm -hmm. And it opens up new opportunities. Every time the ball's passed, Different everybody things. resets. So, yeah, there's a certain format that, you know, we, we um, organized. And it's called, a, you know, an overload because we overload one side of the floor, which gives an open area on the other side of the floor because there's not enough defenders over there. And so we use an overload to set it up. And so the overload, you have to fill that corner and fill the space. So it takes a couple seconds to get into that. So in the process of doing that, you had a certain activity. You did footwork, you did motion, you do penetration, whatever. You might start a passing operation that's going, but then if it's not activated within two seconds, then you're holding things up. People are on the way, they're on the move, and they're ready to go. Yeah. Is there any preconceived idea in coaching or is it all in the moment based on either the person in front of you or the situation you're in? So going in, there's a certain, okay, this is what we're going to work on here with this particular thing. And if I had a player that was an outstanding scorer, which is a talent, uh, a lead singer, a scorer, guard, scoring forward, what do you see? What have you visualized? Because we talk about visualization a lot. What have you visualized will work against this team? For myself, after you know morning shoot around, maybe a, a little salad lunch or whatever, at, uh, one a little workout maybe two, take a forty-five minute nap at three, get up, put on my zoot suit, and get ready for the bus at five. During that forty-five minute thing, 
it's a whole process. I, I see you leaning back here, eyes closed, mm-hmm. headphones on, full of whatever that sound is that you're trying to feel it out. So the same thing, I'm doing similar thing in a situation what does a visualization look like here? What What is the activity level that's going to disrupt what this team is planning to do? We certainly know what their strengths are on the other end of the floor, how they score. But what are they going to try and do to stop? They can take all the way from Michael. They can take so it's almost in. like ESP that you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're trying to imagine what's going to happen tonight. That's right. So... We got in a Donnybrook game one time in San Antonio. It was like one of these games that, uh, you know, the crowd's going nuts and, you know, the San Antonio fans are notorious. And we're playing our uh, balls-to-the-wall game, and it's it's fun, and I keep telling them, we're going to win this game. But I just got that feeling this is our game to win. Things go wrong. Tim Duncan hits a three-point shot or an out-of-balance shot. We're down by one point. I don't know if there's a second left on the clock. I think it's less than a second. So I line them up. This is what we're going to do. Go out on the floor. Out of bounds guy, Gary Payton's taking the ball out of bounds. He's a good passer. Calls timeout. Okay. The guy that's guarding him played for us for three years, Robert Ory. He knows exactly what we're going to do. You're going to have to go to the guy that's open here. He's going to be poaching on Shaq or Kobe or whoever else. You just have to hit the open guy. So we'll go break out and do it again, okay? Do it again. Fish catches the ball. Derek Fisher catches the ball. Back to the 6-1 guard. Shoots a turnaround jump shot and hits it with less than a second. Well, there's only a second to start with. Catch and shoot is all he can do. Can't dribble. That turn and shoot the ball. Goes in. We win the game. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable. How does it happen? You know, you talk in the book that you talk a lot. There are many examples of a miraculous shot. That sounds like a miraculous shot that you just described. What goes into a miraculous shot? Well, I, I think the impossibility of the situation, you know, the, the one that Michael made it finish out the, the, uh, last dance. That was all program. They scored with 40 seconds to go. They were up by three points. I called the timeout. And I said, we're going to do this, and you're going to have this opportunity. But I know the coach is not going to call a timeout for the other team. Jerry Sloan will not call a timeout. He'll expect his team to come down and score. And they'll do the same thing that you guys know. They'll run a post play inside, cross pick by the guard. Michael, you'd come back and steal the ball from Malone, right there. And we'll go down and run the same situation, but we'll have a, you just make an adjustment on it. No timeouts. You won't see that ever in this day and age. <laughs> after after Michael scores this incredible shot where he, he oh, well, I told him during the timeout, you've been shooting the ball and you've got tired and now your hand's dropping. So when you shoot your shot, make sure you, you, you follow through with your, your hand. So he follows through, the ball goes in, we are up by one point, now they call a timeout. Now there's like, I don't know, less than whatever, four seconds or whatever. 
Now they call it a timeout, but that's you don't see plays like that where there's no timeouts. There would usually be like three timeouts in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. Coaches would want to control it. My counterpart down there, Jerry Sloan, had a similar background as I had about their team knew what to do and when to do it. They're really intuitive to each other. So anyway, it was a miraculous shot, but yet we knew what was going to happen, and he knew what was going to happen. He knew what to do. There was a situation as similar to that the year before, in the final game of the year before, where John Stockton had been leaving his man and coming over and trapping Michael, and they stole a ball from him. And in the next game, there was the final game of the series, the sixth game. I said, Michael, you know what's going to happen. John Stockton, as soon as you turn your back or you, you move into that position, he's coming. So Steve Kerr's going to be right behind you. Just put it on his hands. Steve made the shot. And, you know, then he told a funny story at this uh, Grand Park ceremony they had for the team afterwards that was kind of hilarious. As I told, I told Michael, I'm going to be opening in this whole bit, which is funny, which is definitely a Steve type of thing. It's interesting to see Steve in that that whole sequence. He's like really excited about doing it. He's like a six man, you know, he didn't play starters menace, but he was a dead-eyed shooter. And at one time had the best three-point shooting percentage of any player in the NBA. Now his player, Steph Curry, has passed him by with the highest percentage three-point shooter. So it's funny. How much of three-point shooting is uh, practice? Well, um, when Steve came to us, we knew he was a good shooter. My colleague, Tex Winter, and I had gone to watch him play his final college game, and he had a knee operation in between then and coming to the pros, so he sat out a year. So he came to the NBA a year out of college without playing and had no opportunities, very few opportunities to play, a little here, a little there. But we kept an eye out, and when he became available, we went and got him. His high school predecessor at his high school in Pacific Palisades, right down the street here, was going to law school at DePaul in Chicago. I played against him in the Philippines. It's a funny thing. <laughs> he was in the Philippines. He went to Duke. He was in the Philippines playing, you know, exercising his basketball Jones or whatever, getting it out of his system. And he said, I, you know, this is it for me. I'm going to go to law school. And he called me up and said, Steve Kerr wants me to come and help him shoot before practice. Is there a way I can do that? I said, you can have the court until X amount of time. Mm -hmm. You can have it from 9.30 to 10. He said, I'll be there. We're going we're gonna to do it. And he was like three years ahead of Steve Kerr at Pacific Palisades. They both went to the same high school. So Steve really respected his shooting. He's now 15 years with San Antonio, maybe 20 years with San Antonio. He's become the quintessential shooting coach in the NBA. But so he went and started shooting with Steve. And then Steve brought some of his teammates in and they started shooting together. And it became like a kind of, well, let's shoot together and do this, this type of thing. So they'd shoot like 50 shots, 100 shots, three point shots, which is, you know, takes some work. By the time I got back to the NBA after taking a hiatus and being off for a year, they had a lockout that year. Uh, I came back. The teams were now playing a game. Players on the team were playing a game called Cat. So they go to 
four or five different spots on the corner, top of the, the, the top of the key, angle, three-point lines in the other corner. And they shoot knockout. They play a game called knockout. So player makes it in front of you, you got to make it or else you get knocked out of the game. So then it starts over. Then you try to make the shot and knock the guy out behind you. So then they get down to the final two guys. And so they watch these do this. They're still, coach, don't start practice yet. We're still not done with the game. Okay, I'll give you guys five minutes to do it. Kobe, why don't you ever shoot with these guys? I'm not a three-point shooter. I want to go to the basket. I want to take it to them inside. <laughs> That'd be my, my boy, Kobe. He was like a giant killer. You're going to get knocked down. Eventually, you're going to have to learn how to shoot these threes, the jumper. That'll be a time that'll, I'll be ready for that time. But right now, I'm going to the basket. But he became a great three-point shooter. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Well, did you ever see a player that you thought could be Michael, could be Kobe, but for whatever reason, it just never came together? Like you saw the, the promise, but it didn't happen. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple players that were actual contemporaries of theirs. Carter, Vince Carter is one of them, and he was really good. And he won the dunk contest, and you know he had a long career. He played until he was forty. He had a really good career, but he just didn't have that X factor. And is the X factor a desire to win or something different than that? I think a lot of these guys like to compete and they like to win, but inciting it. Uh, it's kind of like the drummer. If he can get the whole band playing together, if somebody can carry not only his end of the bargain, his scoring, but also excite his teammates and get them involved in it too, you know, that's the that's the real thing that, that makes teams click. Come on, guys. I mean, the first year I was a head coach with the Chicago, we'd be playing Detroit, and Michael been knocked down on the floor five times. I go in there at halftime. I go like, coaches, let's meet outside of the locker room. I know Michael's probably going off in there. He's probably irate because these guys are playing scared. They're afraid they're going to get knocked down, and he's got to go in there. Now, to be fair, when I was assistant coach, we had an all-out brawl, brawl with this team. The bad boys, they call yeah. them, the Detroit bad boys. And I had a clipboard on my lap, and I sat there, and of course, you know, my knees are up to my chin when I'm sitting on the, those kind of seats they have. They sit below the court, and the court's this, this much <laughs> higher than, this, than the chair. So I'm sitting there, and my colleague, Johnny Bach, runs out, he's 65 years old or more, runs out there and grabs a guy that's, uh, you know, 6'10", 300 pounds. <laughs> and the guy takes his hand and removes his hand and tears the ligaments in his uh, wrist and his thumb. I said, Johnny, what did you think you were going to do when you went out there? These aren't just normal people. These yeah. guys are extremely strong and extremely big. Doug Collins went out there. He was the coach at the time, and they threw him onto the scorer's desk, literally took him and threw him on the scorer's desk. Now he was like 195 pounds or 200 pounds. He wasn't a big guy, 6'4". But, you know, that's you know, how big and how the effort, you don't want to go out there and get yourself in a, 
in a mess, you know? So some of these players played intimidated. Well, that year, Scottie Pippen got a concussion from a blow he got from one of the players on Detroit. During the playoffs, he couldn't play the second half. And, you know, the final game, he had a migraine the next year, and that was a pressure. You know, his mom had died. There's a uh-huh. bunch of stuff that gone uh-huh. into it, but he had a migraine. He couldn't play. So everybody's like, what's with Scottie Pippen? Is he a winner or not a winner? What's going on with this guy? You know, he can't. He missed the game last year with a concussion. That was the final game. This year, he had, that all went under the bridge under the water. He started winning, and he was like, Came back from the Olympics, the Dream Team Olympics in 92. Michael Jordan came down to the office and we were getting ready to start the season. He said, Scottie Pippen's the second best player in the NBA. I said, oh, who's the best? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you know who's the best. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Yeah, I was revealing for him because there's Larry Bird and yeah. you know, Charles Barkley and, yeah. you know, all these guys that were. Do you still keep in touch with players or not so much? I don't. Any reason or just? Well, I'm not a phone guy. Yeah. I've kind of left guys alone. I've never kind of been on yeah. their case. Yeah. When I get them on the court or get them in the team film room or whatever in my office, I really like to have conversations, but I haven't chased down any players. And this week they retired a number for Pau Gasol, one of our key players here. Mm-hmm. We liked him. He was uh, intelligent, really smart guy. Spoke Spanish, not Mexican, Spanish, mm-hmm. which he says is considerable difference. I had to learn Mexican, but he speaks German, he speaks French. They retired his number, 16, and I went to the game. I didn't go to the pregame, postgame parties that were afterwards, and like six of my players were there, and I was like, I missed out on but you know, I was like, it's too much. I'm got a little knee issue going on, and it was just. You know, but I, I, I have a feeling I don't have a knee issue going on, and I don't go to those things either. And I don't know why. I, there's something strange about it, where um, I don't know. I think if we're people who live in the present moment, we're in the present moment. I hate crowds. I saw you at the Abbott concert at Shrine. Were they at Shrine, and you were in the audience? Yeah. That's the first time I saw them. Might yeah. have been the first time I saw Maybe them. Maybe five years ago or something. More and more. Yes. I, I, when they played at the Shrine, it was probably 10, 12, 15 years, a long time ago. Right. Bless was their there. hearts, those boys. They're unbelievable. Beautiful people. Oh, the nicest people I know. They have a nice spiritual background. They have, uh, their yeah. fathers, are, you know, they've, they've been brought up right. Yeah. I asked their, when I met their father, I said, what did you do? I, I never met anyone like these kids. And he said, I'll tell you what I do. I back them. I back them. Whatever they say, I back them. And he said, if someone came to me and said, one of my kids killed someone, I would have said, they must have needed killing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. What's the range of coaching styles? What would be the opposite of the way you coach? Well, I, I wrote something about it. One's transactional, the other's transformational. Mm-hmm. So when I went to graduate school, mm-hmm. in the off-season of my first couple, three years as an NBA player, 
you know, you're making 12000 a year. You're going to be playing the game you love. And then what are you going to do? Yeah. What did you study? Psychology. Uh-huh. Two guys, Ellis and Maslow, mm-hmm. were the prominent psychologists at the time. They were doing group therapy a lot at the time. And they both had this school that became known as transformational psychology. You can imagine what it means, obviously. Mm-hmm. Transactional, my, my way, the highway type of thing, you know. More like, you know, Pat Riley's coaching style. And Pat's a terrific coach. Terrific Demand. coach in a different way, right. in, in the opposite way. Demanding, yeah. you know, get the job done, whatever. Mm-hmm. Transformational, uh, I learned this, you know, when I was there. In fact, uh, was really interested in the dynamics of my Nick team because of that bonding that we had as a group. We really bonded. It was like, you know, we're the toast of the town. Go to a party here, go to a party there. Howard Cosell was right behind us. I'm going to be around these guys. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to be around them type of thing. Mm-hmm. The next sequence of guys that we had in in 73 weren't like that at all. We had... Uh, we had a group of guys that respected their professional capabilities, but they'd grown into different paths and married and whatnot, you know, things like that happened. So I, I had a couple of different types of teams that I saw were extremely successful. But I knew that from my background, with my dad being a pastor, my mom being a, a caregiver and a minister of her, her own, that this is what they were this is their message. This is a community. We love you. We support you. God willing, your life is going to be blessed and honored and will help you on your way. And giving people that kind of solid base or understanding and then having a standard here, you have to be able to meet the criteria that we have. These are This is a system that we all have to play with and in. And you have to learn this system but show that you want to learn it. You want to learn it, you get a chance to play, and then we'll see how you do. And once you kind of get the feeling of this thing and you can play without thinking about it, it's innate, you're in. Yeah. How hard is it to learn? We say it takes a month. I used to say Thanksgiving, we'll know about this team. And that's maybe 14 games in or so, something like that. But, you know, usually it's, we teach people how to catch the ball, how to pivot, how to use footwork, how to get to a position where you can receive the ball, how to pass to the open side. So the passing drills, dribbling drills, footwork drills. And some people take to it faster than others. Or... Yeah, they've had the training. So we look for players that had good coaching. Hmm. None of that works in basketball now. There's None of that applies to basketball. There's still footwork for a pivot for big guys. Tell me about how teams get assembled. So when you get hired to coach a team, the team's already assembled. You have no... Not really. I mean, we brought in two players the first year I was here, and uh, Jerry West, who was extremely good at that, was a general manager. We brought in one of my former players from Chicago named Ronnie Harper, and we brought in a guy named Sally, John Sally. Yeah who's a backup to Shaq. I met him on the beach one time. Seemed like a great guy. Yeah, oh, he's a really affable Seemed guy. like a great guy. And he'd come into my office or my dressing room or whatever, and he'd say, 
coach, Shaq is worried that you don't like what he's doing. What do you mean? You never give him any praise. Oh, no, he's doing exactly what I expect him to do. Does he need praise too? <laughs> <laughs> or when... That's great. This is this story that... Uh, I like to tell Shaq, Shaq is always overweight after his first couple of seasons. He just got huge. Now he's over 300 pounds, right? So we go to training camp and everything. I say, Shaq, you, you got to lose some weight, whatever. You know, we have to get a grain scale to weigh the guy, right? You can't weigh him on a normal scale. <laughs> so one of the first games, regular season, he's coming off the floor. It's early in the ball game. And I walk up and I, Shaq. What's the greatest thing Will Chamberlain ever did? Well, he averaged 50 points a game and 40 rebounds, 30 rebounds a game. So that's great numbers. But you know the real thing that's the greatest? He played every minute of every game. He played over 48 minutes a game. Do you think you can do that? If he did it, I can do it. Two weeks later, John Sally comes into my, you know, Phil, Shaq's feeling like he's getting pretty tired, you know, maybe we should take him. <laughs> I said, yeah, he's in pretty good shape, though, isn't he? It's so funny. It's so funny. It's just like the right challenge for the right guy who needs the challenge. Amazing. That's the only year he won an MVP title or an MVP award. He was terrific. He was really great. He had a toe from having feet that outgrew his shoes. So his big toe was like this. So when he pushed, that's the one you push off of. When he pushed off this joint, got worse and worse and worse. Until it's so arthritic, he was like, oh, man, my feet are killing me. Get an operation. Help him fix it. Ballet dancers do this all the time. Waited and waited and waited. And I can remember September 11th, following the big day on September 11th, there's still celebrating 9-11. He had the operation at UCLA. I went down to see him at UCLA. His statement was, my time is playtime in the summertime. I'll get the operation on the team's time. Well, Kobe took that as a direct insult. I'm like, Mm -hmm. he doesn't really want to win. So that's where their feud really kind of, you know, they had a little kind of issues about that one. That was a really tough one for him to cross. I was like, yeah, I know the big guy doesn't want to play 82 games, Kobe. It uh, gets tiring after a while, and then hauling that big body around, whatever. Taking on abuse he takes, guys whacking on him like he's a you know man of steel. So yeah, there are a lot of things to make up for it, but there's still that innate desire in Kobe that Shaq didn't have quite have that same killer instinct. Well, he didn't need it because no. he was Shaq. <laughs> He had a different, he brought something else. Right. And he, he really wasn't a bully, yeah. but he could bully. Yeah, of course. But he wasn't a bully. Yeah. I know guys that play bully ball, that yeah. play basketball and yeah, volleyball. Yeah, yeah. But he, he really wasn't a bully. But he'd test you out. He'd give you that shoulder in the chest thing. How do you like that? <laughs> that was hard on my chest. Yeah. I had a, <laughs> he used to blame me for the hack a shack thing because when I was coaching in Chicago, and they were in Orlando. <laughs> I had three centers. I'd say, you guys have 18 fouls? Wow. And when you knock him down, make sure he goes down so he has to pick himself up. 
But just do it if he gets an offensive rebound. You know, I, I don't, I don't go for that other stuff of just whacking a guy. Yeah. But if he gets his own rebound or an offensive rebound, you can't let him put it back. He's he's unstoppable that way. And don't let him complete. So I had the three-headed monster. That's what they called it. They had the three heads of the, the centers on a T-shirt. You talk in the book about the right way to play the game. What does it mean? I see Steve still says the basketball gods. That's the term we used. You know, hit the open man. That's my coach's statement. Basketball is a pretty simple game. You hit the open man, and you see the ball on defense. That's it. That's the right way to play. Yeah. Get the ball up, set a pick, whatever. Yeah. Do the thing that comes naturally in basketball, and, and uh, everything will work out. Where's the line between gamesmanship and cheating? Well, baseball, I, baseball, all baseball's history, they've been stealing signs and uh, doing stealing base running signs, you know, whatever. They've been using pine tar. They've been using cork bats. They've been using whatever. So baseball's rent with that. Uh, it's just part of the game. It's kind of a gamesmanship thing. And there was a lot of whining, especially here in L.A. after the Houston Astros won the World Series. They beat both the Yankees and the, and the Dodgers, and that's that year. Basketball, <laughs> my coaches used to say, we go down to North Carolina, North Carolina State, not Dean Smith and the University of North Carolina, North Carolina State, and the coach there would uh, have a great dinner, steak dinner for the referees, and maybe company later after the meal. Mm-hmm. So he'd get a couple calls the next day on the floor. He knew the referees were coming in. That's kind of how you get at it in basketball is to try and change that. The Celtics used to have nets that were like flush the ball through. And other people had nets that would hold the ball, and you always had to take the ball out of the rim so the teams couldn't run. But the league got to it, and they said, we're going to make the nets now. So the league stopped that. Uh, one of the equipment I carried on the floor was a needle that lets the air out of the ball. Huh. We played basketball. We wanted the ball that you could put the, your thumb in the skin of the ball. Mm-hmm. We didn't want rebounds bouncing all over the place. We yeah. wanted so re- if it could be over, if it was overfilled, it, it bounced, would change the game. Bounce too much. Yeah. So we wanted to box out so we could get the rebounds by the basket, we didn't want that ball bouncing the free throw line. The league stopped allowing that to happen. Even though it says on the ball, this ball can be inflated from yeah. seven to nine PSI, yeah. pounds per square inch. So you preferred it closer to seven than nine? We got it at seven, yeah. yeah. And uh, the league now has the referees, and they mark the balls. So they've tried to take that out. The rims used to be a little bit wanky. They're called toss-back rims, or, and you can pull them down and they, they go back up mm-hmm. so that they don't break the backboard. Mm-hmm. So some of them are tighter than others, and so the ball hits, it doesn't go in, it just knocks the ball off the backboard and out. Oh, here's something I used to do. <laughs> the league, in its infinite ignorance, has NBA Finals in a great big plastic decal at half court. And they put it on half court so when the camera's on the game, mm-hmm. there it is. 
1995 or 2015, the NBA Finals, on both sides of the court. Mm -hmm. Those things are as slippery as can be. If, it, if there's a wet spot on that thing, go and play full court defense about against your opponent because they can't, they can't stay on their feet. It's like a skating rink. They're slippery as could be, especially if they're wet. So And everybody's sweating, so they get wet. Yeah, you can't help but get wet. You know, when I coached to Puerto Rico, I had a guy, Torres, when he ran, there'd be the footprint of sweat right where his tennis shoe was. It'd all squish out, and there would be a puddle of... Uh, in Puerto Rico, they call them mapos. Hey, mapo, get this. Uh... <laughs> but there's there's a number of things like that. Um, oh, here's one that was great. <laughs> Red Arback, who's one of the great competitors uh, and a fine coach. Boston Celtics won nine championships uh, as a coach, won a couple as a general manager. We went there. They had the home court advantage that year because they'd won 68 games. They had a great year, and the rivalry was tremendous. We were there four times, two at our home court, one, one, and one, seventh game. Every game we played, there was a different locker room. We had the visitor's hockey room. We had another different... Uh, just make you uncomfortable. Just anything. Anything to make you uncomfortable. The seventh game... We had to sit outside the ring, and in Boston they had this grandstands, and then they had a ring where all the pedestrians would hang out during halftime. And so to get off the court, we had to walk through all the pedestrians to get to this. I call it a janitor's closet. Yeah. It was like a janitor's closet. We got beer thrown on us, whatnot, going out that thing. But that was that's a red back special. And the other <laughs> thing he would do is that he wouldn't send the tickets down. The players get... Two tickets each, so there's, you know, like 24, 30 tickets maybe for a whole team, mm -hmm. coach, trainer, etc. Mm -hmm. He'd send the tickets down half hour before the game, so players are going out to the court to start their warmups, and they'd say, to "Trainer Danny, Danny, I put the ticket envelope for you know Will Smith distraction, my, distraction on my locker, so when the tickets come, put the." And in mind off the game. Amazing. <laughs> and the Celtics used to play them all the time. Uh, the Lakers all the time. The Lakers would say, that old building, they crank up the heat. It's 105 degrees in the locker room. And it'd be you know, in the middle of June. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. Those are little things that go on in the game. When you're, when you're playing in the heat of the moment and the ball gets thrown to you, Tell me what goes on inside. Is it thinking? Like, what? how do you know what to do in the heat of the moment? It's happening. It's fast. Yeah. What happens? Tell me the, pro the process of what it feels like and what you think is going on inside you. Right. Well, the first thing we taught, and I, I am part of this for having experience, yeah. is how close am I being guarded? Do I have a shot? Should I be passing the ball? Is there a passing sequence? Are you it's aware of this even before you have the ball in yes. your hand? Right. What, what's my situation? Is there a body on body right now? Okay. Do I have to elbow a guy off to get to the basketball? Okay. How am I catching the ball? How? What, That's the first rule. Yeah. How far am I away from the ball basket? And what's what's the going on in the game? What's the game situation? And we tell a guy, those are your two seconds. 
shoot or pass or penetrate. So you look for the shot if you're wide open. You look for a pass if your teammates are open, hit the open man, or then you penetrate and you get. So you only have three. You're only picking from three. Yep. Before you pick, you're seeing whether you're guarded or not. Because if you're guarded, it makes the shooting less of a chance. Is right. that correct? Yep. So you're more likely to eat. Well, you have to either penetrate. First rule of a sound offense must penetrate the defense. Yeah. First rule. You, you must get the penetration. Yeah. And you can penetrate by three ways. You can penetrate by dribble, by pass, by offensive rebound. The offensive rebound is the most dangerous of all of them because you've rebounded You're close right to the basket. You're right there. Now, as soon as you rebound close to the basket, there are two three-point shooters that are standing out there. All their lives, these three-point shooters have hired people to catch the ball they shoot and pass it to them from the basket out to where they're standing. So they are used to the ball coming from this direction and shooting it back where yeah. it came from. And that's Dennis Rodman is good at that, at getting the ball. Dennis would get on a, he'd lift weights to activate himself. Then he'd get on a bicycle, he'd ride a bicycle for, I don't know, 15 minutes so he'd get a sweat. All the time he's riding a bicycle, he'd be watching the opponent. He'd watch where the opponent's shots came off. Does this guy shoot long? Does he shoot short? Does his shot go off the backboard? Do they, does he shoot from the corner and the ball skips this way or that way? Okay, now he's got an idea what he's playing against. What to go. Now he goes in the shower. He showers. The meeting started because it's like, I don't know, 25 minutes to the game. We go out at 15 minutes before the game. Guys have been out shooting, getting themselves ready, come in, maybe put on a new jock strap, uh, dry shorts and, and a shirt and their jersey and whatnot. They're all sitting in their chairs. Dennis walks out of the shower, butt-ass naked with a towel over his head, goes, sits down in his locker. There's 10 minutes left before the game, before he's dressed. All the players are coming in. Dennis, we got to go out. Dennis, we have to go out. Leave him. Just leave him. Go out and shoot. No, no, we got to go out together. Got to go, okay. Dennis, get out there and get their team in. 10 minutes is enough to shoot. These guys have shot before the game. Of course. Amazing. <laughs> He's always making these shooters. Uh, they're they're waiting. They're antsy, waiting in the hallway. Get your ass out here, Dennis. But it doesn't, like the perception of him is that he's a screw-up. But what you're describing is not a screw-up. Not at all. He seemed methodical about the game. He would he did all of the practice that he needed to do to do his job, and he studied the other team and was diligent about his job. I don't know if anybody rebounds at the level he rebounds even today in this, this sport with guys that are, you know, whatever. I think the best height for basketball is like 6'10". I think seven foot is a little bit too tall for the yeah. game. Even. But he's not 6'10". Six, 6'8". Six, six, no, not even that. 6'6". Six, six. But he knows where the ball's going to go. He knows trajectory. He knows where it's going to... There's a picture of him perfectly perpendicular to the floor, diving for the ball like this in front of Roger Ebert, you know, the guy that used <laughs> yeah. to be the film, who's yeah. on the front row seat. And he's got the ball in his hand. He's ready to get it out and throw it. But he's perpendicular, like laid out Flying. completely. Yeah, that's he spent a lot of time on the floor, a lot of time getting knocked down and banged around. Loved it, just loved <laughs> it. It's like a rubber ball bouncing up and down. Yeah. 
There's a cartoon character like that. I can't remember who it is, but... When you're on the sidelines watching the game, do you ever pray? I pray before the ball game when they're doing the national anthem. Beautiful. Let me be a vessel. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, my dad was a minister. My mom was a minister. Both. Both of them. Attended the same Bible school in Winnipeg, Manitoba, back in the 20s. Dates us 100 years ago. <laughs> and uh, they were moved by this charismatic movement that went across the country in the United States. My dad was a dairy farmer. My mom was young. she just uh, come out of a teaching, one-room schoolhouse teaching in Montana. So I was uh, born into this family, sister and two brothers, four of us. And Where were you in the four? I was the youngest. Youngest. So I uh, was a war baby at the end of the war baby in 45, not a baby boomer in 46. But, you know, it was, uh, you know, an interesting time. People coming out of depression, out of de poverty that uh, came out of the depression. And the West was, you know, hamstrung really by Dust Bowl and loss of jobs and farmers lose, losing their land and so forth. Yeah, and people so don't on. know about the Dust Bowl anymore, but it was, was it three years where basically the sun didn't shine? Essentially? Well, it was just, it, it was just drought and wind. My mom, who grew up there, my dad didn't grow up in the, in the West. My dad grew up in Ontario, Canada, really on the Quebec uh, border, Ottawa River and uh, migrated out to marry my mom. And even though they both gone to a seminary in Winnipeg, Manitoba, that was by chance and choice because there weren't a whole lot of charismatic uh, seminaries at that time. So anyway, uh, he came out west and loved it, loved Montana and the open spaces. His family had migrated from what was Massachusetts during mm -hmm. the Revolutionary War? Mm -hmm. They were Tories, mm -hmm. loyalists. And they went to Nova Scotia, and then they got a land grant for losing their land mm -hmm. in what became New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. But at that time, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts incorporated that land, Portsmouth. But my mom, growing up, had, uh, she was from a Mennonite faith, and her parents had migrated in 1902 from Minnesota to Saskatchewan. And she was born there in 07. And then they had the epidemic that was devastating, the flu, or Spanish flu, which it was called, which took uh, uh, three of her five cousins. They went together as a married couple. My grandpa Funk and um, my uncle Reimer, they're German Mennonites. Uh, the Reimers lost three of their five kids to this epidemic and they gave it up. And they went back and homesteaded in Montana. Mm. But the story I was going to tell, my mom would tell about the locusts coming through and would strip the clothesline of clothes and take the, the tails off the horses and the manes and just eat everything, strip the land. And, and they were, they called them the Rocky Mountain Locust Invasion. And 
That's wild. I know it's, it's like it's biblical. I mean, it really is. Yeah, and they felt that way. It was devastating, and you know, people were stripped of land and stripped of an income, and you know, many was a hard, hard life. My mom and her siblings, when they're old enough, they left the homestead in Oswego. <laughs> There's an Oswego, New York, too. Oswego, Montana, which is about 35 people, and went into a town called Wolf Point. And their pop got a tar paper shack for them to live in. They had a coal-burning stove, some traps, and a bag of potatoes. And the four of them went to school, junior high or, you know, secondary school. And uh, they ended up, you know, getting an education in a very rural area in a town, about 3,500 people in a little old town. But that's that's kind of hard scrabble life that uh, they came out of. So it was interesting to be born into a family that was um, do-it-yourself people. Yeah, they could do it. They yeah. could do whatever necessary to survive. So they left. The Mennonite faith is a is like Amish, similar, very similar, uh, and so it's a it's a strict faith in um, very much outside of. The mainstream very disciplined you know farmers yeah um, they were um you know historically i know the background they were uh, dikers and they left the lowland netherlands at the behest of peter the great and went to prussia which was owned or run by russia at that time and dammed a river that they created or you know uh, created the land out of a swamp of a river that was there, and eventually uh, moved down to Moldova, where they did the same for a big lake, large lake down in Moldova, and then Catherine ran them out. The pogrom ran them out in 1855 or so, and they came to Minnesota. Wow. They migrated to Minnesota. My mom went back there during the migration from Canada, Saskatchewan, to Montana. She went back to Minnesota with her grandparents and went to a German school. German-speaking school, Mennonites were there. But then after the, the tragedy, they left their faith, and then they found faith again. Well, they, when they moved out of the Mennonite community in Saskatchewan, which was really a, a movement of a number of young people, mm -hmm. they were just 21 and 20, my grandparents, when they moved up there, and this charismatic Mennonite guy said, let's build a community of our own. And but it was so still a Mennonite. The, the still, new version was Mennonite as well. Rastram, I see. Saskatchewan is still a Mennonite community. Interesting. So anyway, when they came back to the States and homesteaded, they went to the closest thing to their religion, which is Lutheran. It was just you know, a Protestant church. Mm -hmm. But then in the Roaring Twenties, when the Jazz Age came through and everybody was Charleston and Jitterbug and all those things were going on and jazz became really... There was a whole kind of similar movement to the 60s, maybe. And the charismatic wave came across the country, and people had these revivals that spiritually renewed them. And both my parents were caught up in that. My dad was a Methodist. And they eventually uh, developed a church that was developed in the mid-20s, 27 or 28, called Assemblies of God. 
and Church of God. There were two of them that formed, and uh, the Assemblies of God is which my parents were part of. And so my dad was moved every five years, built a church, built a parsonage, uh, knew all the things to do, and then eventually became the superintendent of the state of Montana, which is a massive state. And, uh, you know, I grew up there, and then after he spent his uh, four years there, he went back to being a pastor and moved out of the state and uh, so the new guy could have whatever he had to do. And mo they moved the headquarters from Great Falls to Billings. And so I grew up in high school, in uh, junior high and high school in a town called Williston, North Dakota, where the Williston Oil Basin is, which is a big thing now. And what was life like in your family? Being the youngest and both of your parents' ministers, was it, would you consider a strict upbringing? Oh, my God. <laughs> the, the strictest? <laughs> we didn't have a television. I mean, just to let yeah. you know that, yeah. you know, everything's secular. We have newspaper. What else did we get? Reader's Digest. My dad bought world books, encyclopedias. I was an avid reader. What, what subjects did you like to read about? Well, I read the classics, you know, which you were given as a kid, you know, what mm -hmm. to read. Literature. Yeah, literature. And uh, I started off with, uh, you know, Natty Bumpo and uh, you know, the Last of the Mohegans and Pathfinder, uh, Hawthorne's books. And, you know, things that are interesting, the boy Chipper Hilton, the athletic uh, prowess of a guy who played all the sports in New York, actually Long Island, uh, Long Island, what's, what's the college out there? That uh, LIU is the name of the school. Claire B was the coach, and he wrote these books about Chipper Hilton that were in all the junior high school libraries. You know, playing basketball, playing football, playing baseball. Anyway, you know, I played all the sports, and I excelled at sports, and... And you excelled at all sports? You were just a good athlete? Yeah. Um, I played quarterback until my uh, best friend, <laughs> who ended up got a tryout with the Green Bay Packers, took over as a quarterback, and they moved me to end, a split end. We had a pro offense. and But I was uh, you know, developing all the way through. I mean, I was six foot as a sophomore in high school. I mm -hmm. made the varsity team. And the next year, I was 6'5". It was just... Yeah, you know, was like that. So yeah, I did stop growing till I was a sophomore in college or more, maybe junior. It's one of those things. But the home life, um, my brother, who is six years older than I, brought in rock and roll music. He had a little uh, record player, forty fives, and uh, if he played it in his room, my dad, and mom were okay with it, but it wasn't allowed in the house. That type of thing. Mm -hmm. That's cool, though, that they let him hear, like they yeah. didn't shut him down. Right. The uh, dancing, alcohol, smoking, etc., were, you know, off limits. Those, those things are off limits. So, Even dancing? Yeah, dancing was, you was know. Was there like, any thought behind, why, did they explain why dancing was not okay? It's erotic. You get aroused dancing. I see. Close to, you know, you in contact. I see. Well, how about a jitterbug, Mom? Well... I know, I, you know that I did the Charleston back in the 20s when I was a kid growing up, but, you know, literally that's kind of frenetic and maybe too exciting. Yeah, but people dance in the Holy Spirit in the church, you know, and they get under the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So we went back and forth. My mom was a great debater, and she loved to listen. <laughs> and she liked to, to hear us, you know, challenge. So that was a good deal. Do you feel like even though you ended up leaving your parents' faith behind, it still had a big impact on your life, the fact that you had it when you had it? Oh, without a doubt. There's such a, you know, there's such a feeling of emotion that rolls through a congregation. And my mom spoke in the evening service, which is more of an evangelical service, and my dad spoke in the morning as more of a pastor. But yet there there was uh, these emotional uh, surges that would go through the audience, the congregation. Various speakers would come in, and you very much got a feeling of the move of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that was a term used. And my early years, I heard about the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament that Elijah and Elisha were moved by. So that was a big part of our experience is to be emotionally involved with religion, to have a personal relationship with God. And uh, so it was, it was impressed upon us to the point where my dad used to say, well, the Catholic Church says that if we can have a child till he's six, he'll be a Catholic his whole life. He said, we feel the same way about our faith that if we can have a child till the age of six or seven it'll influence their whole life so it did even though i went to college and you know immediately was assaulted by things that uh, challenged my belief evolution uh you know the variety of things that uh, we were taught in science and elsewhere and you know ended up leaving a pre-law type of direction for philosophy, psychology, and religion. Those were my major minors, and I had a composite major because I was still, you know, a searcher, and I, I continued to be. Mm -hmm. I was a philosophy major, and then I switched to film and television just because I was also on the track to go to law school, and it didn't matter what your undergraduate degree was in. Right. And all of my friends were in film and television, and it just seemed like more fun. So if it didn't matter to get where I was going, I might as well have more fun. That's why I switched. I have a degree in film and television with a minor in philosophy. <laughs> but was a searcher as well, same. The department in uh, North Dakota where I went back and got an honorary doctorate, uh, you know, a few years, 10 years ago or so, they took me to the place where Benjamin Ring, my uh, advisor, had left and they dropped the philosophy department. That's how far liberal arts have fallen from choice. Philosophy is still there. Philosophy yeah. department, psychology department, obviously. But, you know, the religious uh, department is gone and philosophy department is limited to just one guy. No more department. So the uh, changes from liberal arts or from seeking has been more specific to technological training or whatever scientific training it's interesting yeah it's it's because i think the, the big ideas are still just as interesting as they were when we were younger <laughs> well you know the the idea that uh, you know you were given this um introduction to western civilization when you went to freshman year of college 
And, you know, you learned about, you know, Plato and Socrates and know thyself was the, you know, that was the whole goal about this pursuit, you know, is to know yourself. And the idea that that's still the pursuit that we're on as individuals is, is really a never-ending pursuit for us. The people that are seekers and people that want to to uh, evolve. Would you say for the most part, even though it has changed, has your spiritual life continued from childhood to now in equally strong way? Yeah, the um, morning we had what was called devotions and we had to be downstairs at 7.30 if we left school at 8.30 and we were downstairs at 7.30 and we read a scripture of the Bible. We usually were pursuing some form or fashion of a storyline in the Bible. And then we prayed. And we got on our knees to pray. We didn't sit at the table and fold our hands and bow our heads. We got on our knees to pray because that was, uh, you know, how we did it. To this day, I sit in the morning and meditate. So it's the same thing, basically. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think... I think it might be fair to say that the it doesn't really matter the path you take to get there. They all can share this same power. We're we're all looking for the same thing, regardless of which stream we choose to get there. There's not. I don't know that there's a right way to do it. No doubt. You know, I have a brother that uh, is Parkinson's. He's in a care facility now, who's a Sufi. Beautiful. Yeah, and that was. Uh, typical of, you know, kind of where the Pentecostal faith was because a lot of it is about music and about being in rhythm and about the emotional aspect. And Sufis, the same function within the Muslim faith or Islamic faith, and the dancing and the twirling. He does the twirling? And, yeah, a little wow. bit. So, yeah. It's, it's beautiful to watch. I know. And they're, the unison, they're, it's so beautiful. Yeah really something so yeah he's a sheik eventually in uh, the sufi faith which is a healer he was a therapist in uh, real life uh, which he carried into his therapy but yeah my my oldest brother who passed away a couple years ago well two years ago this april became an agnostic he got hodgkins non-lymphoma hodgkins and went through a period where he lost like 40 pounds and went through a whole thing that uh, revitalized him and lived another 10 years afterwards. But during that period of time, he lost his faith. He lost his belief in God. He found that he couldn't find his pathway there. And he was a, a guy that was Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda, that whole Seth Speaks, that group of uh, mm -hmm. seekers that were, you know, looking more for spirits more evidence of supernatural spirits than and you know we're sitting here doing this and you know i i was thinking on my way down to see you or up i should say to see you that i've sat with a number of people therapists and film people and we've talked about the flow about being in the the spirit being in the moment. And that is really what 
is the joy that brings people together, and that's the binding force that makes these religions happen, and that's terrific. Can capture it. It's impossible, I have to say, you can't make a film about this. This is not going to happen. As soon as you turn that on, it doesn't translate. Yeah. It's in the moment. In fact, my teacher would say it's before the moment. It's the moment before the moment. Mm -hmm. You can Beautiful. almost anticipate it because it's there before it happens. So would you say that the, the unity of a team playing well together is a spiritual oh, event? Oh, without a doubt. It hooks you on sports when you're a kid. You know, all of a sudden, you just have that feeling. And I was fortunate because almost everything I did was successful. Or, and I had great teammates and had great experience playing sports in both the high school and college level and professional level, too. Uh, having been on three teams that went to championships, two that won the finals in the NBA, and then... You know, having the experience as a a mentor, coach, teacher, you know, for all the championships that uh, the Bulls and the Lakers were able to win. So you you sit there and enjoy. You know, people always ask me, why aren't you up and about like a lot of coaches are up and down the floor and, you know, yelling? And I said, well, you kind of learn that if you teach and coach you trust the players to do what's supposed to be done on the floor. Then you can sit back and join that feeling that they're experiencing out there. And you'll know the time when the time is right to say, time out, let's, call, let's get together and talk. So it was, it, it was a vicarious experience, not playing, <laughs> not in the band, mm -hmm. but still participating in a different way yeah that's again that's closer to my experience i usually don't play in the band i'm usually on the sidelines but it feels great to feel that energy i feel like i'm part of that circle when it happens and it's it, it's a miraculous thing because it it can be not happening for a while and then all of a sudden it starts happening and no one involved knows what changed you know, that's the interesting thing about it. I was thinking about coming back the final year for my, at the behest of players uh, that were leaders on the team. Just let's do it one more time. Uh, but we couldn't do it one more time. Something just wasn't right. It just couldn't click. We had a moments here and there, but it, it wasn't, uh, it just didn't flow the way it's supposed to flow. And, uh, you know, I kind of figured out it what actually, happened. It actually flowed exactly the way it's supposed to flow, <laughs> but it wasn't the way you wanted it to flow. <laughs> exactly. This was the end of whatever it was. But it was, it, was, uh, it was an interesting feeling of, hmm, what's going on here? How can we make this better? So that's one of the things that I think was kind of a pivotal point of my existence now is when you know coaches call or get a you know information about what should I do about how to sit back you have to be there you have to be in it you can't be about it you're not running it you're being part of it but you <laughs> I'll tell you I'll tell you something that I I haven't 
I rarely have told anybody this, that I line the players up. The players know this. I line the players up the first day of, of camp. Usually we, we used to have this extended number of guys that would come in. The NBA wanted us to have like 20 players maximum come in and that, you know, in case there's an injury or in case someone goes down, you can still have practices. And then you keep cutting. Three days, you cut players. Five days later, you cut players. So you're finally down to your 12. Now the NBA has 15 guys on the team. They just keep expanding it. But you had 12 guys. So when the 12 were finally formed, and it was a week before the season started, I'd line them up on the baseline and then tell them, the Lord, the owner of this team, the NBA has given me the authority to coach this group of guys. And we're it. By your own admission, by your own actions, if you agree that I will be coaching you and you'll accept my direction, I want you to step across the line as a physical way of expressing your obedience or your following to what we're going to do. And I, I wanted to do that. And one of my mentors, one of my, actually my coach's assistants, who was 35 years older than I was when I started coaching, he was 65. Now he's 30 years older. Uh, gave me that story from a freshman team that he played on at Fordham University, and Vince Lombardi was the coach of the freshman basketball team. I was like, Vince Lombardi coached basketball? He said, yep, Amazing. freshman coach. And that's what he, he said, God, Fordham, and the president of this college. <laughs> it's such a funny <laughs> list. And I said, you know, it's a perfect thing because you, you want the players to follow and to be able to submit to coaching. If you get resistance and then it becomes a thing, it falls apart. But if you're like, okay, we're in this together, you know, you've agreed to do this, and I'm, I'm gonna hold you to it. In the years of doing it, did anyone not step over the line? No. There's a force of, you know, like, okay, I'm in with them. But there were definitely guys that had trouble. You know, they used to say, um, if you can keep uh, 10, 11, and 12 from associating with 6, 7, and 9 on the bench so they don't form a unity, that was, that was a baseball player actually named Lentz who said that about the Yankees. You can keep those guys that are unhappy about not playing from the guys that are partially or bench players so they don't form a union and get a whatever. You get, you're in good shape because the starters are all happy. They're out there playing. They, they could not like their role, but that was kind of the going thing. I, I played everybody. I, you know, maybe I would get the 12th guy in, but then at the end of the game, I go around the locker room and say, guys, I'm sorry, I couldn't get you in the ball game. So know, I, I they know, all want to play. Absolutely. <laughs> not knowing anything about basketball, which I said to you <laughs> earlier. Can you tell me a little bit about the hierarchy of a team? Like there's the owner of the team. Yeah. And then there's the general manager. Uh-huh. And then there's the coach. Right. And then there are the players. Did right. I miss any steps? There's a myriad of also's in between there. Mm -hmm. An owner has to be compliant with what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for me, I had owners that stepped aside. Mm-hmm. Owners wouldn't come in the locker room. 
They addressed the team at the end of the season or a Christmas party, and that was it. I had to remove general managers from the locker room occasionally because there was something intimate that was going on in the group that had to be discussed. And um, would the general manager be the person who originally hires you or no? Well, in some cases, the owner does. Some cases, the owner. It was forced around in the Laker organization. The owner was the one that dictated who to hire. The other situation, my other team that I was with, the Chicago Bulls, it was the general manager that went to the owner and said, it's time that we hired this guy. And when you were Nick, how did, it, how did the hierarchy work? About? Well, our general manager, Eddie Donovan, and he was hired as a coach, but he didn't have success, so they made him a general manager because he was a really likable guy and he had pretty good direction. And he had two colleagues that were coach and scout. And the scout would stay with the team as assistant coach until basketball, college basketball started. And my first year in New York in 67, we had three players that were first-year players on that team, and Walt Frazier and Bill Bradley. Bill Bradley had to serve in the reserves before he could come. He'd been a road Scholar, and uh, when he signed up, he was under 6'6", which was the max 6'5", and so he had to serve in the Vietnam War, so he went in the reserves, and they put him in a six-month or whatever training, so he didn't start with us. And the coach was replaced two weeks after Bill finally got back and joined the New York Knicks team in December, which was deeper in the season than it is now. It's, uh, you know, like 25 games now, and that time we started in the middle of October. Baseball had no playoffs. Baseball was over in October. So... Anyway, the replacement coach was the scout. His name was Red Holzman. And Red had scouted all of us. So he knew all of us intimately in our, our game. And so it was, we were, took off running. We were best record the next part of the year from that point on. However, the next season, we did get off to a good start. So the general manager, Eddie Donovan, came to our training camp, our, no, our practice facility, and he fined everybody like uh, $250, a lot of money. I was making 12500 right? So Walt was first-round pick. He'd probably make it 15000 So it was, it was a lot of money. But anyway, it was like, Phil, you and Walt, you guys don't pay the fine because you got bandages on your knees because you've been on the floor fighting for the ball or whatever. And he was going off about how guys aren't hustling, and, you know, that's how he got to it. And our Players Association representatives, Walter the Bell, Bellamy, said, Mr. General Manager, sir, we have no showers that'll last after the second shower. It turns cold. There's a hole in our practice facility floor in the corner over there. We're playing on wooden backboards in the... Moss Battalion Armory on 52nd Street and Queens Boulevard. What do you expect from us? I mean, we don't even have duffel bags. We have crocus sacks. Well, you know, a crocus sack is what the cotton pickers put the cotton balls in. We have crocus sacks to carry our 
that did it for Eddie Dobbin. He turned into a fountain of spittle and invectives, and eventually in a month, Walter Bellamy was gone to another team. There are a couple incidents that created that because he didn't get off the bench to fight in an overall brawl that we had someone later in that initial season. So and that fi- Was change, fighting more common then also? Yeah. Wow. That change turned the whole franchise around because we got a player named Dave DeBusher. It was the name Dave DeButcher, I always call him. <laughs> and Dave came, and all of a sudden, our Willis Reed, who was a forward, became the center. And for seven years, we had high success. We were on the flow, in the moment. And because of that, Eddie Donovan moved on and went to the new franchise of Buffalo, New York, which was just starting out an expansion team. And our coach, Red Holzman, became the general manager. So he became both the general manager and the coach. And was he the person who scouted? He was the person who scouted you and brought you in yeah. and ends up coaching you. That's great. How and then much, paying me. How much influence <laughs> did the coaches you've had over the course of your life impact you as a coach? Everyone has. I have two coaches that are Hall of Fame coaches, Bill Fitch in college, who ended up winning with the Boston Celtics in the NBA. He was a charismatic guy. And Red Holzman is a Hall of Fame coach. More than anything, I lend to kind of recite some of the things about Red Holzman that I learned. Red Red carried a um, Woolworth watch in his it is a shirt pocket. And he'd say, see this watch? This is a $2.95 watch. I have to wind it every 24 hours. And this is our time. This is our timekeeper. If you're five minutes late, we'll hold the bus. You'll get fined. But if you're more than five minutes late, the bus will be gone. The plane will be gone. Practice will have started. And you'll be fined more than just a silly fine, which was the first five minutes which could be $10, whatever, a little thing, little thing. So when he'd, he'd have an issue with you, he said something in the paper he thought wasn't team-oriented or whatever, he said, step into my office, and we'd step into the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> this is my office. Okay, anybody in here? Okay, let's talk about what you just said or whatever, what, what's going on. So there's a certain demeanor. Don't get too high, don't get too low. So... We started off in a bang the next year. We won 18 in a row. The 19th game, we lost. Red, what are you going to do? You, you, know, you lost. Well, I'll do the same thing we do when we won last night. I'll go home. Tom will cook me a steak. I'll have a scotch. Sit down, watch tonight's show, and go to bed. Get up in the morning, go back to work. Don't get too high, don't get too low. Middle path. He was a Buddhist. Wow. Yeah. Was yeah. he really a Buddhist or he just no, was a middle path guy? He was a middle path guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he was a, a pleasure to work with. Um, his demeanor was, uh, let me give you an example. Cassie Russell, famous player, Cassie Russell. College player of the year, 1965 or 66. Bill Bradley, College Player of the Year, 1965. 
faced off against each other, not only the holiday tournament in Madison Square Garden, but also the, uh, the Final Four in the NCAAs. And they subbed in for each other. Bill started, and Kazzy came off the bench, which is a hard thing for Kazzy. But he struggled with it, but he, he, had a, he had a great demeanor. He wanted to win, and he, was, he sublimated his hard feelings. He's a minister now, and 30 years afterwards, he came to Bill and said, Bill, I had really hard feelings about you starting ahead of me when you were a player, and I want to ask forgiveness. And Bill was like, oh, Cassie. I knew it was hard. I knew about it, but we got along. We won, and we, were, we replaced each other, and we did a good job, and have no, no fear. I have held no grudges against you. So that was great. So anyway, the story's going to tell about the demeanor of Red Holzman. Cassie had a couple incidents, and Red wanted everybody to be together. We go to the games together. We ride the bus together. Prove point, Will Chamberlain lived in New York City, played for the Philadelphia Warriors. They moved to Golden State and became the Golden State Warriors. But before they moved west, he was a Philadelphia Warrior. He lived in New York City and drove to the games which is, you know, like 90 miles or whatever it is, 85 miles or something. Yeah. But that, that would be Will. You know, he's just by himself. He was a loner. Red didn't want any part of that. So we're playing in Philadelphia, meet at Madison Square Garden, take the bus, get off, Dolly Madison Cafe rest stop on the way down, have a little something pregame meal, drive the rest of the way to Philadelphia, go to the game, get dressed in the locker room. Cassie shows up. Oh, Cassie, you drove down. Yeah, I, I did. How much were the tolls in Benjamin Franklin Bridge? Yeah, I think it was four fifty something. Like that. Deduct that from the hundred dollar fine that I'm going to give you. Okay? <laughs> right? It's so funny. Yeah, that was his. That was his way of kind of. This is your punishment. Were, were the penalty? Were, were the punishments really about the punishment, or was it something else? It was something else. Tell it me just, about it. It was just it was just about being called out and being you know like you weren't on this thing as a teammate you weren't joining in you weren't part of this and putting your whole self involved in this thing so it was a subtle way of doing it so it was very uh, very impressionable for me who was uh, you know twenty two year old twenty three year old kid and uh, you know then I had a Injury that kept me out for a full season. And then I was like going to the games, but not able to play the game. And what know, does that feel like psychologically? It's awful. It was an awful feeling. But the thing that happened was Red was like, come on, hang out with me. We'll be, we'll talk before the game and we'll, we'll talk about it. And in the process, he was like, Phil, what would you suggest we do against this team in front of the team? Oh, yeah, I thought we should step out hard on that screen roll or whatever, you know. And he started to rely on me as a person that could express it as a player because I think he didn't want to have to do that. This is a guy that never drew a diagram. Yeah. He had no boards, no chalk, no nothing. He's, you might be in a restaurant, he might move salt shellers and pepper <laughs> shakers around. And just, you know, but he never, he never did any of that. 
process. There's a guy named Digger Phelps that coached uh, for Notre Dame for a long time, but he started out at Fordham. And there's a holiday tournament in Madison Square Garden during Christmas. They had had major teams come in, but you know later on it was less insightful. And Fordham was in the tournament, and they were waiting to get on the court. Very little practice time in Madison Square Garden because it's busy all the time. And so we got to practice in the morning, be there at 10 o'clock, and we got 10 at noon. At noon, Fordham had the court. So we were doing something at the end of practice. And Digger Phelps, who was a young 33, 34-year-old coach, said to Red Holzman, oh, I saw you running a play like we, we run. Did you, did you see us run that play on TV or something? And Red said to him, Digger, this game's been almost uh, 90 years old. Every play that's ever been thought of has already been run somewhere in some schoolyard or some YMCA or whatever. I don't think there's anything in this place. Go. We don't have that. We don't do that. So he would say to us, if you have something you think really works, bring it to practice. Show us what you think will work, and we'll work on it. If we like it, we'll keep it, and we'll give it a name. So we got something. Can't remember who got it, who brought it. But the next day or next game, I can't remember whether it's a game or just after a game in practice, he said, remember that play that we ran the other night? End of the game? That sequence of things, options for everybody? Yeah. What should we call it? What the fuck should we call it, he said. Oh, that's what we'll call it. What the fuck? So I coach the Lakers. They have great success. I run this play. I've run this play with the Bulls. I've run this play with the Lakers. Coaches that comment on the sideline say, why can't anybody stop this play? What's, what's going on? Christmas 2004, Mama, San Francisco. Shaq's been traded. Big deal. He's been traded to Miami. Miami's playing the Lakers for a Christmas Day game. Game's closed on the end of the game. Timeout's called. Six seconds, eight seconds to go in the ball game. Kobe's coming to the bench. He's going, Frank, tell the coach what the fuck. Tell him what the fuck. He doesn't know it. You got to show it to him. So the uh, the owner's daughter, who I was in a relationship with, Jeannie Buss, called me up and said, what's he talking about? <laughs> I said, that's the name of a sequence of actions. What the fuck? So he just he's just calling it that. But that would be ready. Just find a name for something and just throw it out there. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Let's talk about, about Jeannie for a minute. I read in, in the 11 Rings book that you just moved to the lake. You just came to California, new job, and you meet essentially the boss's daughter, and you're the new guy, <laughs> and you had the confidence <laughs> to start dating her and it worked out great, obviously, but um, tell me about the mindset of that because many people would think this is uh, this is not the smart thing to do in this situation. Yeah, appropriate <laughs> workplace relationship. I have my staff, and the NBA used to have a preseason collective. Everybody in the NBA, maybe a thousand, eight hundred people, would go to a, a whole meeting that have general managers and trainers and ticket people and everybody, the coaches, and et cetera, the referees, and the administration staff would come out. 
when I was in Vancouver, and I flew up there, I still hadn't, I wasn't being moving into a house that I bought in Playa del Rey until October. So it was still, you know, whatever. Training camp was going to start, we'd be on the road, and then, you know, sometime in October I'd move into this home. The collective has a big meeting on Friday morning, everybody comes in, then they break down into their groups and so forth, and we had this whole thing about race that was talked to us about how, we, you know, the media's making it look like uh, there's more crime with the black community and the players and the pro sports and the NFL, whatever. So we get through with that, and then we break up into meetings, and then the evening, each individual club takes their staff out for dinner. So, I don't know, go to the dinner, right over with my staff. I have two of my three coaches with me. And uh, I go in there, and Jeannie is hosting the dinner. And she says, you know, it's nice to meet you. I was at your press conference uh, a month ago. To be honest with you, I was hoping that Kurt Rambis would get the job, but my dad insisted on you. And um, I'm in charge of uh, operations at the forum and now moved into another job uh, as a vice president in charge of operations. Great. So we have dinner. I'm with a group of trainers and you know, personnel that are more associated with the team. And there are three tables, probably 30 people. Leave. The next day I go to a meeting, which is a meeting with the coaching staff. And I go to the airport, fly down, because I have a daughter coming in to meet me in, in uh, L.A. I get to the airport. Typical Vancouver thing. It's raining. Planes have been delayed. And there's Jeannie Buss sitting in the lobby waiting for her plane. Oh, well, what happened to your plane? They canceled it, actually. I've got a plane that you must be on if you're flying down there. And I said, yeah, okay. Is it delayed? Yeah, it's delayed. So we have about an hour to sit. So we sat and talked for about an hour. She was going to her birthday party and uh, I think was turning 38 at the time. And I said, you know, do you want to sit together in the plane? She said, are you in first class? And I said, yeah. She said, I don't fly first class. I fly coach. I said, okay. How come? She, she said, well, you know, I'm the boss's daughter, and I could. I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, show what people do. My girl. It's the type of thing I like. So that's great. Monday comes, she's at her party on the weekend, and it's lunchtime, and it was, she sends down a piece of cake, birthday cake. So I went by her office on my way out, I'd been interviewing people and getting associated with the organization. Thank her for the birthday cake. And when I walked in and said, hi, thanks for the birthday cake, she blushed, and I went, oh, shoot, I'm, I've lost it now. <laughs> so I said, you know, I'm by myself. Do you want to go out to dinner? And she said, yeah. And uh, so anyway, started out a romance. And, you know, we had a, we had a great run of, uh, you know, 15 years or so together. And uh, we used that old phrase that Hepburn used, live close and visit often, but don't live together. 
so that became kind of the deal. But we ended up actually living together about three years while one of her houses was being you know, built in the model home that she bought into. But that was it. And business-wise, she was a really a big help because she kind of could ferret out some of the things that go on that I would have to deal with. It was like, oh, why isn't the commissioner coming to our championship ceremony? Well, 9-11 happened. He's got to be in the city. He wants to be there to support New York City and whatnot. I've never seen a commissioner that hasn't handed out the rings and the trophies and everything. Well, don't make any issue of it. Okay, I won't. So <laughs> those are the couple kind of things that she would... Uh, yeah, I'm always kind of bucking against the establishment. I've always kind of been anti-establishment, but uh, she really helped me in that, that regard because she's politically astute. Would you say part of your job was an advocate for the team against everyone else, meaning the management, the press, anyone who wasn't on the team, even if they were associated with the team, were you that buffer? Yeah, and I think that's the reason why Michael Jordan and I had such a great relationship. I didn't ask him for anything. I didn't. Uh, yeah, you weren't a company man. You were a Bulls man. You you were for the team, and you know, I didn't have him sign tennis shoes or bring people to meet him or do anything. It was just we have a player coach relationship, and this I value more than anything else. So that was that was a big deal, and I saw how he'd been held before. You know that it was, and we end up a lot of times on the same floor, executive level floors. You know, and I'd see, you know, like eight hotel employees that are parked outside his room waiting for an opportunity to get a signature is always on him, always on him. I, I don't know if anybody has been, probably Tiger Woods, I, I would say, has been highly sought after. But that Tiger Woods' group was entirely different than the group that were looking to find audience with Jordan. Yeah, I had a crazy conversation couple of weeks ago with Andre Iguodawa <clears throat> and it blew my mind that the powers that be within the organization that he plays with and this is not the case just for the team he's on for all the teams that there's so much pressure on them to spend their time doing social media and to be on camera all the time and he said and it's a complete distraction from the game and it really gets in the way and we want to win and they're concerned about us doing all this other extra stuff that really gets in the way. It sounds amazing that that could be the case. So much so that it became uh, like an issue for me. I'll, I'll tell you what, one of the episodes, for example, you have shoot rounds during the mighty times in the playoffs when they get tight and, you know, you go through a conference final and then you go through the NBA final. Your shoot round is designated. Home team has their option, 10 or 11 in the morning, and you have to take whatever they don't take. So we're playing in New York and uh, we're playing the Knicks. The Knicks are a really good team. They've come up through the ranks. We've traded our best power forward for their center. Bill Cartwright, who was Twin Towers with Patrick Ewing, and giving up a guy named Charles Oakley because we have a young 
stud named Horace Grant coming along who's I think can do his job, can can replace him. So anyway, it's loaded, a load of stuff. But we uh, are pressed a little bit because we've lost both games to initiate the series, so we're down 0-2 in a seven-game series. The next game coming up, rather than going to the shoot-around, I take the players to the Staten Island Ferry. Amazing. So they take the ferry over, and we just have a casual time. They invite us up on the top level of the ferry. Right. Yeah, you know, whatever. So the league find me for not being there, which is okay. I'm all, I'm all right. You know, mm-hmm. I'll absorb the fine. The only problem was it didn't make it run smoothly. Is Clinton flew in a helicopter, and then every traffic, you know, how the traffic goes when the president's in town. So we had to wait a half hour extra anyway, but we got it done. We won the game. We won four straight after that to win that series. But those are the minor things that go on all the time. You have six various meetings during the course of the year that uh, are added on. You have uh, physical urine specimens that are taken four times at the various times they surprise your team and there'll be three or four guys that are picked out on the team that have to do the specimens. One time, uh, I think we had to wait an hour and a half post-game because Kobe couldn't find anything to urinate because he'd uh, he sweat everything sweat out so during much the course in the game, of the game. Of and then, you know, we're just depleted and he had to drink like uh, three bottles of water before he could find it. Anyway, we left in the bus and the, you know, eventually came out on his own in a cab. You know, the um, amount of stuff they ask, you know, at one point, uh, David Stern, who was a strong leader, pulled me out and said, I want you to meet Adam Silver, who's now the commissioner. He has a proposition that at the end of the first quarter, The visiting team will meet with the press, the TV announcer, and give a little rundown. And in the between the third and fourth quarter, the coach of the home team will meet with a on-court reporter to give an assessment of what he sees during the course of the game. Well, I would send my assistant coaches out to do that. I didn't want to be part of that because I said, that's a distraction for a coach. He doesn't need to have that going on. But then they eventually reeled me in and said, no, we have to have you. You have to be there. That's the oversight that they, overbearing thing that they do. And I I was like talking to a coach recently and I said, you know, the guys that played, I don't know what, 65 games, they're 68 games, something like that now. They're bored of each other. They're in a pecking order that they maybe don't like all the time. He's like members of the band that go off. You know, it's the same thing. I said, take them out to a movie. Take them to a comedy show. Take them. Can't do that anymore. I said, why? Because whatever you spend on them is against the cap. I was like, that's crazy. I used to give my credit card to the team and say, go have a pre-series dinner out together. So uh, anyway, when the other thing I used to do, so the silly fines, I told you about the fines that you do. So now we, you know, here we are with players making up to $25 million, $35 million a year. 
So if you come late, five minutes late, shoes aren't tied, we're center court in a circle, you don't have your jersey on, you're not ready to do what we're ready to do, silly fine. That silly fine incrementally goes from 50 until three strikes, and then it goes to $100. And my assistant coach will be around to pick up the money from your per diem when you get your per diem. And we'll shoot for that money next week or two weeks from now or whatever. And so how much is in the pot, Frank? $100, $300, $1,000. Okay, winners get 250 each, and we'll shoot for them. We have a shooting game. Wow. So then the league said, you can't do that because that's giving players money. I said, that's crazy. This is like peanuts. This is like, this is like spending and money. And it's such them. a great idea to turn a fine into a right. opportunity. Get it back. To, it's such a great idea. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those other hanging fruits that they said, you know, we just want to we take this because it's just, I said, if you knew how much was made in these shooting games and how it was, so that when you set in your syllabus or whatever you want to call for the season, you have to expressly designate what your fines are. And I would go like, okay, my fines, some guy's fines are $500 for being late or $1,000 for this. My fines are 100 bucks, But they hate it. They're like whining about losing $100. <laughs> You get it back if you get, if you win the shooting game. I'll put you on a good team. But yeah, just to keep it lively and, and light is hard to do now because it's uh, over overlord and uh, the players, you know, have rebelled against it in some some way. But they they have also complied in other ways to kind of let the league take over. But it's um, I think creativity is is something I picked up from your book that you're searching for creativity and as a leader or as a mentor, you're, you're always looking for what can I give that's a spark to help. So, you know, in the process, you know, I think about the players and at some point we take usually a two-week trip. You play the other conference, there's seven, eight teams in the other conference, you may play six or seven of them on the road trip you're gone for two weeks. So I'll get on the plane, I'll have a book for everybody. And the book usually matches something about who you are. Dennis Rodman, picture book of motorcycles. There, feast on that. And then the art of motorcycle maintenance uh, was, was one of them that I gave away that uh, was a book in which someone got a compendium to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance uh, because it was difficult to to read is simply, Persig, the, the writer of that book, was a co-author of the great books, um, which the University of Chicago put out in the 60s. That I still have the copies of all the great books. But storyline about, basically about how do you get totally focused on the direction you want to go. And he wrote it as you know, a parable of riding with his son, who was a strange 13-year-old teen, young teen kid from like Minneapolis to Bozeman, Montana. And that's where he had to stop and he had to have his bike worked on and the guy was playing rock and roll music and he couldn't do the right job and he was talking about 
you know, all these things, the technology that goes into, at that particular point, he was, he was writing instruction manuals and how, as you probably have noticed, a lot of times instruction manuals, you go like, what? Someone that didn't have everything, anything to do with this technology wrote this instruction manual that they aired on the way, you know, and he'd say, the guy that can't usually do the technology is the guy they say, why don't you just go write the instruction booklet and get out of our hair? But it was a, it was a book that I wanted one of my leaders of my team to read because he grasped the idea of what we were doing. Like you talk about craft in your book, that's basically one of the chapters or one of the notations that I just recently read. We spent a lot, lot of time, basic skills. When I came and coached the Lakers, one of the players, Rick Fox ran by where the coach is standing on the sideline and said, Coach, I feel like I'm in the seventh grade. I said, Yeah, I know. That's what you are. You're getting back to those, you know, fundamentals that we had to learn when we were kids. So we had something called skills and drills and teaching players how to do the various skills that they could operate inside of the fun function of our offense. So it wasn't complicated. In fact, you know, the brighter people were sometimes, the more they thought, and that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to get people to just instinctively react so they're not the idea of going through thought process before you can act too much. You how, just have to act. How much of being a great athlete is purely physical versus the mental and emotional side? One of the great scorers in the NBA, Elvin Hayes. Great battle between Elvin Hayes and Lou Alcindor at the time was the largest crowd to ever watch a college basketball game at the Astrodome, University of Houston versus UCLA. Elvin Hayes came in the league, number two pick or maybe first pick behind Wesley Unseld in 68. And Elvin had a shot, a turnaround shot that you, was almost unstoppable. Got the ball in the post, tremendous skill of uh, leaping, and he turned to his right shoulder and he banked it off the backboard. And it was just like a money maker. He could make this shot. One of my assistants inherited the university, or inherited the Houston job when they moved from San Diego Rockets to the Houston Rockets. He inherited that job. He had hoped to be coaching the San Diego Rockets in his first attempt at pro coaching, and he ended up in Houston. But Elvin Hayes was there, and the skills and drills that we used, Elvin could perform. And so Tex would take him off the court and teach him individually some of the skills. And eventually got so frustrating for Elvin that they traded him. They traded him to the Washington Bullets, and you know he won a championship there actually one year. But I told the coach I never thought Elvin could win a championship because he's he just had this one phenomenal thing he could do because he's such a great athlete. He had a little hook shot, I should say one thing, but that was his money maker that that shot. We beat them in the playoffs one time with a player that was one of the great players I played with named Jerry Lucas. 
who that team was just feeded in Madison Square Garden, by the way. I didn't go to their, their honoring their championship of 73 is, what is that, 50 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, 50 years ago. And Jerry was there. But anyway, Jerry was playing center because Willis Reed was hurt and had to have a knee operation and missed the rest of the season. But Elvin Hayes, so he said, Jerry, what'd you do? He said, see that hand? He got a great man. He's my size, 6'8", but he's got this huge hand like a bricklayer's, I guess. He said, I just put it on his hip and I just turn up an extra two inches. So now instead of shooting there where he wanted to release point, he was shooting at a different release point and he couldn't get it, couldn't find the way. But that's the intricacies of the game. That's you know yeah. where the smart guys you know really understand the game and the the subtle things that go into it. And that's the kind of players I was fortunate to play with, and uh, the coach that understood that too. So I think it kind of rubbed off a little bit, especially when I had to sit out a year and I had to watch and I could see and I could wonder what was going on that was different between this group of guys and that other group of guys which look so talented but somehow or other when they're a collective group they couldn't quite do it and i'm sure you've seen it many times great musicians come in just can't find the beat can't find the yeah. harmony can't put it together yeah and what what String makes it. one group great it's not always obvious right away and if you take two different groups and analyze what makes them work, or if you switch one member from one group, one great group to another great group, and you just switch them, switch the drummers, neither group's great anymore. Even though they're both great at what they do, there's something about this, um, it, I, I think as it relates to music, it has to do with rhythm, the way we each hear rhythm in our own way. We hear it in general, but the way we feel it is either yes. a little, ahead of it or a little behind it or right on it and it's different and the great bands the way the musicians play together it's that tension between the guitar player who hears it a little ahead of the beat and the drummer who hears it a little behind creates the sound of that group or another another group it's the drummers leaning forward and the guitars are playing straight and that's the sound of that group and they don't know it they don't know, but there was a band that I went to see at Hollywood Bowl, a band that I liked, and their drummer quit the band, and they got a different drummer who was probably better than their original drummer, and it was no good. It didn't work the way the band worked, even though they had a better drummer. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the dad. I sat with the dad, and I was uh, you know, invited to be on stage with them a number of times, and Mickey Hart, and... Uh, their other drummer? They call him Bill the Drummer. So that's I just know him as Bill the Drummer. Yeah. The two of them play together. Yeah. And, you know, they drive that group. And, you know, Jerry sometimes couldn't get into it in his later stages. And then he'd finding, you know, kind of, I'm in it now. And then he'd get in. Yeah. I also am a friend of uh, Bruce Hornsby. And Bruce would say, these guys, they're fucking LSDs brain dead sometimes he just can't get them going yeah it takes them a while to get yeah, going yeah. but they'll get going somewhere in them in session one or two somewhere they'll get do you know what joe smith is mm -mm. 
producer, uh, Capitol Records. Oh, yeah, yeah. Joe Smith, he died yeah. uh, yes. two years ago. Yeah, I'm uh, friends with Mo Austin, who's his old partner, and Mo just died about two years ago, oh, or yeah. one year ago. I know, they're great, great together. But anyway, Joe always told me, couldn't sell that Grateful Dead album, the greatest band as they are. You, they just couldn't put an album together. Yeah. But, you know, he also... He also had Van Morrison, who he'd say, this guy come in, he'd be as loony as a nutball. He, you know, he'd be wandering around my office, and I'd be like, well, what? Then he'd say something like, off the wand, okay, yeah, all right. He bought Van Morrison from Gangsters in Boston. I think he said he had to pay $50,000. He had a check of $50,000. He was like 25, young, and he went up there to their office scared as hell walking up there because he said these guys are gangsters but that was the music business back then which is well music business switched a little bit but van morrison has always been someone that i would i always look to see is he playing is he going to be somewhere where i can go see him he's amazing amazing voice the feeling in his voice is unbelievable I don't know if he does arrangements, if he's part of the arrangements, or who does arrangements with don't him. Know. I don't know how it works, but he's made incredible albums. I saw him in 72 in the finals. We were playing the Lakers, and the Santa Monica used to be open. That used to be a venue, a music venue. And he had this... Santa Monica Civic Center? Yeah. I don't know what the hell, maybe 7,500 or so? What huge. I think less, 2,500 maybe. Might be. But he, he had this bass on a cord that must have been 50 feet long, and he would be rocking around the whole stage. This guy would go across the whole stage. He was kind of like Ben Morrison, just let him roll. And Ben just, you know, he's a, like a statue. Yeah. He's pork pie hat now. Yeah. Got a cigarette smoldering behind him, drinking whiskey or whatever. He's got stage fright all the time. Amazing. Amazing. I saw him play at the Hollywood Bowl with uh, when he was doing the Astral Weeks album with the original players. And it was just, I never saw anything like it. So beautiful. I don't like the Hollywood Bowl, but I'm so glad to hear it was a good show. It was great. Yeah, I like the Hollywood Bowl because I like outdoor. I just like being oh, yeah. outside. I like any, Greek. Any outdoors. I like the Greek for that. Yeah. I, I mean, like I, I saw Coldplay there. and You know, maybe they're not that great in, you know, live situation Coldplay. They, they made a great album, though. Mm-hmm. But I, I've gone to the Philharmonic that's yeah. been there. I'm, I'm a classical music guy. Yeah. I had a conversation with Bob Weir. This was a, this was a mind-blowing comment that he made <laughs> where uh, we talked about the two drummers. And there's a movie from the 70s, the Grateful Dead movie, where there's only one drummer in the movie. And yeah. I guess that's, I don't know whether one of the, whether Mickey Hart either Mickey left came the late. band. No, he came late. He just came late, so yeah. he's not in the came movie. Late to the group. And it was interesting, and it gave me a different understanding of the dead, having one drummer. And one of the signatures of the Grateful Dead is the two-drummer thing. Yeah. And I, I can't think of another group who have two drummers. All they, the they, brothers. Be a, that's true. And there are some bands where they'll have a drummer and a percussionist, but uh-huh. it's different than two drummers. And I asked Bob about the, the two-drummer thing, and he answered this. It sounded like a joke answer, and he was dead serious. He's like... Yeah, I'm still not sure if that was the right thing to do. And he was dead serious. He's like, I don't know if that was good. 
it just happened and we we stayed with it but i don't know if it was good i don't know if it was better yeah mickey go off on that airspace or whatever he do back yeah. there for a half hour you <laughs> be playing something <laughs> <up there. laughs> tell me about team personalities when i say team personalities i don't mean the group of players in a team but the the bulls versus the lakers versus the knicks versus the warriors yeah. is there a regardless of who's on the team it seems like teams have some sort of a style or personality is that true yeah usually there's a driving force or a combination of things we we had a interesting kind of meeting of the team after we had this major brawl in Georgia Tech, we're playing the Atlanta Hawks their first year in, in Atlanta. They moved from St. Louis, where they won 60 games a couple years in a row, to Atlanta. And it had been a big change for them. They were really in the South. St. Louis is kind of in the South, but Atlanta was really in the South. Now, this is the first exploration as can the NBA survive in the South. So they weren't killing it. Georgia Tech tough little arena, underground. You walk down to level two stories probably below ground, mm -hmm. just one story above. You walked in, walked down to the floor. Had the old seating with the railing around. Mm -hmm. There's enough room for a court, and there's a little bit of extra stuff in case I don't know what else they would do there. So we got in the game. Locker room was, you know, Partition, like kind of like that. It's just like a six and a half foot walls. It's all spacious up above. You could hear everybody in the whole building. Right before halftime, I posted up a guy named Paul Silas. He hit me in the back of the head, knocked me down, and got over the top of me and don't elbow me. And I just posted him up and done this. And I've got really broad reach, broad shouldered, broad reach. So we shot two free throws, uh, went up this tunnel. And there was some barking around. Uh, we had a guy who was getting after Silas. What the fuck's going with you, Paul? And he punk, he hit me in the foot. Anyway. So we got up and get in the locker room, and we're either side of this field house or this locker room. And the coach of the other team is banging the lockers around. You fucking guys are pussies. You're not ready to play as hard as I want you to play. And oh boy, this is going to be something else. So we go out on the floor, and one of the a guy named Sweet Lou Hudson turned around and slugged Willis Reed on a screen. Didn't go to the screen, turned around and hit him. And wow. Willis had this reputation of being, you know, like the biggest brawler in the game. He had uh, taken on the whole Los Angeles Lakers team in 66. <laughs> Broken two nose, one jaw. So everybody's off the bench, and uh, guys are trying to hold each other back and whatnot, and there's Walt Bellamy sitting on our bench. He didn't get up. Next day we fly out. We're flying Detroit somewhere. I don't know. I think it's Detroit. And we'll have a team meeting. We'll get a little conference room. We'll talk before we get on the plane. Okay, so we get in there. Walt, why didn't you get off the bench and join your teammates? I don't think there's anything worth fighting for in basketball. Well, I, I think you got to join your teammates out there, even if you go out there and grab somebody and hold somebody back or whatever. They traded him. 
And they brought in Dave the Butcher. The Butcher. <laughs> so Dave and Bill Bradley hooked up immediately, and it was like, Willis has got to be our guy. He's got to be the captain of this team. We're going to call him Cap, okay? So they started calling him Cap. We had, you know, Walt Frazier, my age, second year. Dick Barnett, who was 33. Kelly's tear when he was like 32. Still playing, still terrific player. And, you know, then we had Cassie Russell and some, some guys on the bench that were great, talented players, college talented players, but not starters. So, anyway, that personality revolved around Willis as the enforcer. He took care of business. If things got too rough out there, things happened. He protected guys that, uh, you know, if uh, Rick Barry wanted to pound on Bill Bradley, he'd take care of him. So it, it was kind of a strong man's game at that time. And, and Willis was like, you know, 245, 6'9", six 6'8". Six he was a big, broad-shouldered guy, but he was not, you know, like LeBron James. LeBron's like probably 270, to, you know. So the Bulls, when I went to their team as an assistant coach with uh, just at the start of the year, they'd lost a coach who had gone to an expansion team, and they'd hired me right, I'll tell you the story, Jerry Krause, a scout for the Baltimore Bullets and a baseball scout for the Chicago White Sox, lived by scouting. He loved sports. He loved baseball most of all, but he loved, loved sports. He, he prided himself on watching players and assessing them. He had noticed his team from Kansas, Kansas State, and the coach in Kansas State got his team to the Final Four a couple times, and he won this conference that had really good coaches. Hank Iba, it was really good, good uh, basketball conference. And he, he won 17 out of 19 years that he coached in this conference. Incredible. What's he doing? And Incredible. he doesn't have any, he's got all kids, farm kids. And Incredible. So, so he went down there, and this guy, Tex Winner, who became my associate, come on in. Look at tape with me, as friendly as could be, just an open-hearted guy. He had a system. So I was in Puerto Rico coaching, and I was coaching in the minor leagues in uh, Albany, New York. I've been called by their ownership because one of my teammates, Dean Memminger, had been coaching the team and things hadn't gone well. They'd lost 15 out of the last 17 games. That's a pretty long, pretty bad record, and they were hosting the All-Star game, and they just couldn't find a way to, to win, and so they, they had to make a change. So I called Dean and said, you know, whatever. He said, no, nah, Phil, I've lost this team. Come on in. But I want to I scrimmage against these guys. When you come have an open scrimmage, I want to play against these motherfuckers. Okay. So that didn't work out. They all beat up on Dean, who was now 37 or 38 or something, right? And these are kids that are 22, 24 years of age. So I'm coaching there, and my coach, Red Holzman, had coached in Puerto Rico, and he always told me, if you ever get a chance to coach in Puerto Rico, go down there. It's pure basketball. You're playing the games every other day. Wow. You're down there for like, you know, whatever. You play 33 games in, you know, 70 days, 
And they, it's the biggest sport in the island. They love it. <laughs> it's a, a real challenge. So after I went to Albany, the next year I went back. It was, I had a business. I was doing a recreation business in Kalispell, Montana. And my partner and I had put in, I don't know, $100,000, and we had a $50,000 loan to refurbish this place. And it was, interest rates in the early 80s were like at 15, 16%. We're talking about 6%. We're really suffering back then with, uh, you know, trying to bring inflation down. So it was a good deal for me to take this job for six weeks in Albany and, you know, make whatever, $5,000 or whatever they're going to pay me and get it off the payroll of this this uh, sports facility. And I came back the next year at their behest to coach the team who won a championship in Puerto Rico offered me the job. So I went to Puerto Rico. So now I'm coaching two teams. I'm coaching like 80 games a year. And I won a championship in Albany. I go to the finals in Puerto Rico. And Jerry Krause gets hired by the Chicago Bulls to run the Chicago Bulls. He had uh, scouted me in college. Was a big fan of my coach, Bill Fitch, and came out and watched me in North Dakota in 20 below weather. <laughs> so he calls up and said, come on in. I want you to be part of this. And so I flew up from Puerto Rico. And uh, there was friction between the coach that he chose, and even Stan Albach and Jerry. And they had a, a black ball. If you want a black ball guy, that was your choice. The coach and the general manager had to agree on what the staff was going to be. And Jerry had already blackballed the guy that he wanted to bring in named John Killalay, and Stan was unhappy. And so when I came in, and it was his first choice, he blackballed me. So I went back to the minor leagues again and coached. And the next opportunity, Jerry Krause gave me another chance of being part of this organization. So this time I came in, I shaved my beard, I wore a sport coat and I looked the part and uh, the coach that was there named Doug Collins, who's a couple years younger than I am, but we were competitive, against, uh, competed against each other uh, in the NBA, wanted me on the team because the other two coaches, one was the Olympic coach that he had played on in 19, the one that lost 72, and the other one was Tex Winner who Jerry Krause hired immediately because this is a guy that has a system of basketball. So I walk in there, one guy, Johnny Bach, played in the NBA on the Providence Boilermakers was the name of the team, Providence, Rhode Island, and had been a batting practice catcher for the Yankees after he came out of the service. They both served in World War II. Both of them were in the Navy. Tex Winter was a pilot Johnny Bach was a gunnery ensign, lieutenant, actually, ended up. So they're both vets. One coached in the East for like 25 years, and the other coached in the West for like 30 years, 35 years, and they were in their 60s. And they were just the, a great combination. Johnny Bach, Irish, Dutch, Irish, Penmanship Award, New York City boy, born and bred in Brooklyn, went to Fordham, part-time artist, knew all the things about Eastern basketball. Zone defense, tough, 
games or like 50 to 48 and whatever. Tex Winter <laughs> was born in Texas, emigrated to California, and went into service and ended up, well, he, he was a pole vaulter. He vaulted 14-6 with a steel pole or whatever they had before they had the highest vault and took third in the national track. But he was this athlete and then played at USC for this guy who was, you know, one of the West Coast group. And it was entirely different. The West Coast would run and gun and play. They had games in the 80s and the other coast had games in the 40s and 50s. Two different styles mm -hmm. before television. Tex had gone from college, which after he was in the Navy, obviously he's 23 or so when he got out of college. His coach recommended that he go to Kansas State and work as an assistant coach for a coach that wanted a system of basketball. And so he brought this system, which was called an overload. We call it the triangle. He called it the uh, triple post offense. So there are a variety of names. But he had been sent out to scout young coaches that could take over the Bulls by Jerry Krause, who trusted this guy with all his intelligence of basketball and his knowledge. And he, he hired a young guy named Doug Collins, who was from Illinois, to come coach the team. And Doug was erratic and bright, really charismatic in a way. Good. Um, except he's emotional. You got a very emotional guy. So when I came in and joined the staff, Krauss had to fill a spot, and he needed to fill a spot with someone that was younger because these two 60-year-old assistants were like, okay, Doug's 36 or something. I'm 40 or 37. I guess Doug maybe is three years younger than I am. Anyway, I'm 40 when I go there. My, one of my friends, who was an actress, had missed my birthday in the middle of September. And her brother, who was a sports fan, said, one of my friends is an agent, and he knows Jerry Krause. And Jerry Krause knows Phil Jackson, and he talks to him on the phone. So he said, I'll get the number for you. So he called Jerry Krause and said, I need Phil Jackson's number. And Jerry gave him the number. My friend called me. And wish me a happy birthday. It was, I think, September 20th. She missed my birthday by three days. So, great. Good to hear from you, whatever. What are you doing? Well, I, I resigned from my coaching job here in the Cockroach Basketball Association, the CBA. And I actually went to unemployment this week to see if I could qualify for unemployment insurance. My wife has a job with hospice, uh, setting it up in the county of Ulster County, Kingston. And Chelsea just started junior high school, and my kids are in high school in Woodstock, or in grade school in Woodstock. Oh, great. Do you like it? It's, it's okay. I mean, I like to have a job, but I'm not, you know, I get interviewed. I didn't get the job with the Knicks, whatever. So I'm going to do the best I can here. I've got a couple things that offers. Next day, this guy, Jerry Krause, calls up and said, Phil, we got an opening here. I want you to come in and interview for this job. She said, how did that happen? Well, I just so happened to have your number and name on my desk when this guy walked in and told me that he was leaving. And he's our only young coach that we have, and we have two older 
gentlemen that are coaching the team. So that's how he ended up with the job. It's There's a series of these uh, <laughs> events. That event is um, the circumstance worked Whatever. out. You're at the airport, and Jeannie happens to be there, and your flight gets canceled. Yeah. It's like, this is not by your planning. This is just, it's just happening in front of you. Just being open, just, you know, being open or having the... So I go there, and it's all about Michael Jordan. It's Michael Jordan and the Jordan Airs. <laughs> and Scotty Pippen's a rookie, and Horace Grant's a rookie, and Charles Oakley's in his third year, and, you know... They had some and they've not won, even though they have Michael Jordan, they've never won a ring. Is this correct? They did. They almost got to 500. They were 38 and 42 or something like that. The 30, yeah, they, they almost got to 500. And the year that I came in, we won 55 games and lost like 35 or 37 or whatever. Big change. Yeah, uh, but when still, when you came in, just so I understand the lay of the land, is it accepted that Jordan is the best player? Uh, he, of, of not just of that team in the league, he won every award: player, defensive player, scoring title, MVP. But the team is not the winningest team. They're not winning. Okay. So anyway, we had you know Tex Winter, who's supposed to be helping him coach. You know, I was like, okay, we've gone through three point guards, Doug. It's not about the point guards. It's about not having a system. You've got to get the ball to Michael Jordan all the time because he's getting 38, 40. So he's 36. always double teamed also. And yeah, and you got to devise a play a day, basically, because everybody's scouting and whatnot. You need, you need to have a system of basketball. You don't have to run my system, yeah. but you need a system of basketball. So it's, it's organized. So anyway, we went through three point guards that year. Finally, the next year, Things didn't go quite as well, and Doug had it. And he was like, Texas got to go or whatever. So Tex had to go sit in the stands during the game and had to sit on a chair during practice and take notes because Krause was adamant that he stay. Mm -hmm. But that process spoiled the deal for Doug. And we didn't have as good a year, and things kind of fell apart, and so they gave me the job. Amazing. I happen to like order. I like the process of organization, and I like the idea that you have to fill a certain standard before you can play. So we had this process in which we went had through these things. Had you seen this process work before? Yes. You, tell me about that. My coach, Red Holzman, yep. coached in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. He succeeded Tex Winter at a town called Ponce in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And he learned some of this action. And so I played some of this action. My coach in college had gone to Kansas State to learn this offense and had taught us this offense when I was a senior in college. So it all fell in so place. You, you, I was like, oh, you this already is were aware of it, and you saw the potential that this thing, it can really work. You know, I'd call Michael in and say, Michael, you're not going to have the ball all the time. You're not going to get 37 shots a game. Which is not what he wants to hear. I, you're not Last gonna, thing he wants to hear. You're not going to get 37 points a game. 
we have to share the ball. We have to distribute the ball. And everybody's just playing for you. They're just going to defend you. He says, is this an equal opportunity offense? I said, kind of. <laughs> he said, I could still win the scoring championship. That's not that big a deal. You only, I only have to get eight points a quarter, 32 points. I'll still win the, you know, the scoring title. <laughs> oh, I told him this. Nobody that's won a scoring title has won a championship since Rick Barry. That's interesting. And that's almost 20 years ago. That's interesting. That's a good stat. That doesn't happen. That's a good stat. So he thought about it and said, I could win a scoring championship anyway, <laughs> which would be typical of him to say. So anyway, no, that's a great, that's a great challenge though. Is like, yeah. no one's done it for 20 years. Let's see you do that. So then, uh, the next involvement was to put Scotty Pippen, who was a forward at the top of the floor as a guard and put him with our stabilized guard, the guy that gives in the motors, the art of motorcycle maintenance, John Paxson and Put Michael in a forward position. You got to explain to me what, what a guard is. I, I really know Top nothing. Top of the floor, bringing the ball up, organizing the team. Okay. Forwards down below the free throw line or free throw line extended. Yep. And recipients of the ball, organizing, having to deal with the, uh, whatever goes on. But not initiating. Understood. And which are the ones that have to be the best shooters on the team? Doesn't matter. Really? Really doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, forwards historically kind of were, but then guards became dominant with the ball, and they, they started being scorers. Okay. And at that particular time, point guard had evolved into the game. So everybody was searching for a point guard. Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, didn't matter what size you were, you had to have a great point guard. And tell me what a point guard does. He handles the ball. He's the point offense. He runs the team from his ball handling skills. I see. Tex Winter is like, we don't have a point guard. We have two guards. We have two guards out front. We don't rely on one guy to organize our offense. We have everybody is part of this organization process, which brought everybody in. Mm -hmm. Michael's still the leader. Scotty yeah. Pippen now has a prominent role. Mm -hmm. Bill Cartwright's our big guy who's laying hardwood on people if they get too feisty mm -hmm. here. So that's, that's kind of dynamic in that team. Mm -hmm. That group wins three championships, and then they move on. They retire. Paxson, Cartwright retire. Jordan goes to plays baseball. Uh, Horace Grant opts out. And you know what motivated Jordan to want to play baseball? If you had your ear to the urban level, they would say the commissioner saw his gambling that he was doing on the golf course and his and told him, step away from basketball. It's not true at all. His father was murdered that summer. His father always wanted to play baseball and was a really wow. good baseball player. Wow. So he had like a, almost like an emotional crisis with right. his dad dying. Sad. That's fascinating, though. It's wild. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah, it was a terrible situation. He was close with his dad? Yeah. His dad came to all the games. Wow. He was, he was there all the time. And he called Pop. And, um, and it was unexpected, the dad dying? His dad was driving in North Carolina. He pulled off the side of the road and went, fell asleep. Native in, uh, reservation in, in North Carolina. Guys came by and 
took his car and killed him. Wow. Murdered. Yeah. So he came in and, um, you know, the owner who I respected, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf's his name. He also owns the White Sox. But he said, Phil, Michael wants to retire. What? Michael wants to retire. He wants to go play baseball. He's asked me if I could be, if he could be part of the White Sox baseball organization. I said, what's the process here? I told him he has to talk to you before he can, I'll agree to it. So meet me over at the arena, the facility. So we go over there and Michael said, I just lost my thirst for the game. I've done everything and we've won three championships. No one's done that since Bill Russell. Yeah. I said, Michael, you don't understand. You're Michelangelo. Yeah. You are beyond yeah. is what standards of basketball belong to. So anyway, he goes and plays baseball. He stays in touch, and the next year he comes back and plays the last 17 games. Team's totally changed. The only two left in that team are Pippen and himself. We get wow. Dennis Rodman. We get Ronnie Harper. We have some... Tony Kukos. And Dennis Rodman was a, 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 a strong rival before this. Yes, he was with the bad boys in Detroit. Actually, it threw Scottie Pippen into the stands. <laughs> it one of the, on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> he went in for a layup, and he was running, trying to catch up, and he threw him in the stands. We swept them in a tournament in the finals in the East. And then I had to go through those guys. They were co-captains. I... I I like to have co-captains. I didn't want Michael to carry the load all on his own. And I called him and I said, how are you guys with the Dennis? Oh, I don't know about him. No, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll monitor it. I mean, we'll really stay attached to Dennis. Well, he's gone off the reservation. You know, he's, he's gotten into Madonna and he's, she was in the locker room and and uh, the Spurs, and you know, he got into, you know, carrying a gun, talk about suicide in the parking lot. His, his teammates, you know, he lost his wife to his teammates' relationship with her, and he's got some real. He's gonna be all right. He needs to be challenged. He's gonna be fine. Just trust me. We'll we'll handle it. So they did. They allowed they allowed him to come in, and and is it is it because they so respected him as a player, like they saw what he could do? Amazing guy. Amazing guy. There's no, there's no conditioning. There's no level of tiredness in basketball for him. Yeah. I was 28 to 32 minute, man. I was, you know, I, I was like hands on knees. I'm tired. I, I, he was like stronger at 45 minutes than he was at five minutes. And it's just an inborn, that's a gift. Yeah. That, that ability. Oh, yeah. Tex Winter was a track guy. I would always say, this guy should have been a 440 guy, you know, a 400-meter guy. Yeah. But so before Dennis came, the team went to practice. Season started. He came a couple of days late. So I met the team and said, we'll have different rules. Normally, we have these rules. If you're late, this and this. this. Dennis can't be on time. There's, there's nothing there. So he's going to come an hour before the game. Everybody else has to be there an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. He doesn't shoot. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go out and shoot. 
he goes and lifts weights and rides a bicycle and watches tape. Yeah. And and is this what he wants or is this what you want for him? How does it, how does it come to that? This is how we met and talked beforehand. Um, Tell me about that conversation. That sounds great. So we I had a list. I had a list of five players that could help us out. We needed a power forward. We lost Horace Grant. We needed a power forward. We played without one. Michael came back for 17 games. We got beat in the whatever. So the next year we're putting together a roster and we go through the guys that we go and we bring guys in and so forth and so on. And then one of our, uh, one of Jerry Krause's assistants says, I think San Antonio will trade Dennis Rodman who ran into problems with his team the year before. They had lost to Houston. Robinson, the Admiral, they called him, Dave Robinson, had not wanted to guard Elijah Wan, and Dennis had to guard Elijah Wan. Dennis is 220 pounds. Elijah Wan's 275. And Dennis is 6'6". He's not 6'8". He's not 6'7". He's 6'6". He's a muscular guy. He's built like a, a brick shithouse. But, he, you know, Elijah Wan. And Dennis goes like, what are you talking about? This guy's a defensive player of the year. David Robinson is. And he won't guard Elijah Wan because he's afraid he's going to get fouled. Come on. He's got his balls in the refrigerator. Got his balls in the freezer. Whatever. So Dennis goes off on his teammate. That's enough for them to, well, that's bad harmony. Let's get rid of him. So Dennis comes up to Chicago, and I'm called over to meet him at Jerry Krause's house. So I walk in. He's got a poor boy hat on and sunglasses. <laughs> He's got nose rings, lip rings, earrings, studs. Studs in his nose. No, he got rings in his nose. So I walk over and hi, he says. So Dennis, stand up and shake hands. That's what you do when you meet someone. Stand up. Let's go outside and talk, okay? So we go outside and talk, and then he's like, I need to get paid. Dennis. You're at the wrong organization if you say you need to get paid first thing out of your mouth. You have to produce. If you produce, they'll pay you. This is about doing the job and getting paid. But tomorrow morning, I want you to meet me over at the workout center. We talk a little bit more about his problems and what, what happened to him and Madonna and, and his was life. Was there really a deal cut where in success he would do well? Yeah. Did that ha that, so that did happen. Yeah, he so went he bet from, on him. He was willing to bet on himself. He did. He went from like two million to nine million dollars salary. Incredible. So we meet the next day in the team room. I have a spirit room in the team room. I have someone sent me from the Kama Indians in New Mexico a shield and a bow and arrow set, and they had met with me. I have this relationship with Native Americans. My member of the Oglala Sioux Lakota Indians. And the response that I get from Native Americans has been incredible. And they love bulls because the bulls are really resonated with them. But anyway, this is about a, a prayer. This arrow, we shoot into the arrow that's a prayer. And I had a bear claw necklace, I had a headdress. What else? I had 
variety of Native American things that was kind of the motif of this room. Dennis said, see this necklace I got? The Ponkas gave me this necklace. They adopted me in the tribe down in Oklahoma when I was going to school there. I said, oh, that's something. That's good medicine, Dennis. Yeah, whatever. Well, we really honor the Native American here. He said, oh, he said, that's great. But he became... So you had an immediate connection just based on that? Just a simple thing like that. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, follow-up story. Two years later. No, the next year. We have a successful season, win more games than any team's ever won, whatever else. He's immediately, he fits in. Doesn't want to shoot, doesn't need to shoot, does everything else. If everybody wins, all good. Next year, somewhere in the season, a little bit bored, he gets knocked to the ground. He's right under the baseline, and he lashes out with his foot and kicks a television guy right in the groin. Black guy. Suspended. 14 games suspended. That's 14 games is like a whole month, a little more. So assistant trainer, first of all, He's got a little knee tear. That's great. We'll, we'll do that knee tear. You can go out to California and work on it. You don't need to stay in Chicago where you're going to get trouble and work on it. So I call him and the assistant trainer into my office. I have an eagle feather. Dennis, I want you to have this eagle feather. This is between you and I. And this is a trust factor that we have now between us, okay? All right. Ten years later, we're at the Hall of Fame induction of Dennis Robin, and the assistant trainer said, you want to hear what happened on that trip out to California? I said, yeah, I, I know it went pretty wacky because he wrecked an automobile out here. He was on Tonight Show or somebody's show, and he ended up marrying a, a starlet in Vegas. They were partying a lot. But anyway, tell me what went on. So I get on the plane, and the pilot said, this plane's headed for Dallas, Texas, and we'll be taking it. I get out of my chair and I walk up to Dennis. I said, Dennis, this, t- this plane's going to Dallas, not L.A.? Oh, it's okay, bud. It's all right. I got to go sign some papers. My, I bought my mama home in Dallas or whatever. So, okay, I go back to my seat, second class. We fly into Dallas. Walk out. There's a stretch limousine. From one of those uh, um, strip clubs in Dallas, and the girls are standing outside welcoming Dennis into the car. And so we go to the strip club. And we're there until, I don't know, three in the morning or whatever. It was forever. And eight o'clock in the morning, Dennis is at my door knocking on my door, but let's go work out. Go <laughs> work out. Okay. okay, we go work out. I'm doing my training routine. And I say, well, when are we leaving for L.A.? He said, so we're not going to L.A. What do, you, what do you mean? We're supposed to be going to L.A. There's this Grand Prix race that's in Dallas now. We're going to go there. Dennis, there's 100,000 people going to this thing. Well, what, what are we going to get? We've got a helicopter. Don't worry about it. So we helicopter in. Dennis meets the queen of the whatever, the... Dallas uh, Grand Prix race, and he spends another night hanging out, and we finally get to L.A., you know, three days later. Amazing. It's like going to the Greek. Amazing. He said every morning Dennis was at my door ready to work out. He so had to work out. whatever he did didn't impact his ability to play. No. 
And it seems like that's his business. I mean, if you show up and you can do your thing right. and you can do it in a way that no one else can do it, seems good. Well, that was the whole thing I said with the team. I think this guy is going to be really great, but we're going to have to allow him. And you're not going to fall, can't fall into the same trap that he yeah. does. Yeah, and You can't live that life. But you see it doesn't screw him up. He's an anomaly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, final year in that group, we won three, three again with that group. But the final year, Scotty Pippen had an issue because now he's paid 100th highest paid player in the NBA. He's also on the top 50 NBA players that have ever played the game. Yeah. So he's radically underpaid. Right. He's making like a billion dollars. What they did is they front-loaded his contract. Yeah. Which is what they, they in their financial assessments, yeah. front load the contract. Yep. And then when someone gets, you know, into their 30s, their value is going to decrease and you could trade them. Mm -hmm. They're not going to have such a high margin see. that you won't be able to trade them. So I see. when we signed him, we told him this is going to be a front loaded contract. At mm -hmm. some point, you're going to be unhappy with it because it's going to have more money to start with and less at the end. So he's unhappy. So he, breaks the toe, middle toe, in his left foot in the finals game the year before we won finals in the East versus Miami. Doesn't get it fixed. Doesn't get it fixed. Hopes it's going to be okay. Plays in the game during the season. Has a bitter fight with Jerry Krause. There and his agent are in arguments about get him in here and get the operation. And then he comes in for the assessment for the Training camp starting tomorrow. The doctors look at him and they say, you have, to, you have to have this fixed. You can't play with this this year. So he's going to be out six weeks. So I bring Dennis in and say, Dennis, you're going to have to pick up the load. And Tony Kukoc, we had another player to back him up that's a terrific player. But you and Tony are going to have to back up and take, take over. And Dennis you know, for the next two months was like on top of it. Then he went a little bit wacky. Mm -hmm. But the addenda story of the year before, after he missed 14 games, his teammates came in to see me, like, you know, Steve Kerr and Jeb Bushler and, you know, and said, you know, Dennis is coming back. He's been gone for almost five weeks. We need to, you know, kind of get together with him and have something. And his agents proposed that we get a wrestler's bus when we're in Philly and we'll drive to Atlantic City and we can have a good time because we have two days off in between then and we're going to New Jersey, which is just up the road and play in the New Jersey Nets. Okay. So we play Philadelphia, we win the game. And I say, there'll be a practice tomorrow. It'll be a little later, noon or so get a little later practice, but we'll see you then. So the next morning, my staff and I always have breakfast together. We're the Four Seasons in Philly, and we're looking out the window. The window's right out there, and there comes their bus, and there those guys come off their bus, and they're like children. They're acting like they're 15 years old, right? Oh, this is going to be an interesting practice. So I find, I hear the story eventually that Dennis stopped in Camden, New Jersey and had a tryout for who was going to be able to get on the bus with the team 
there were only like eight of them. The whole group didn't go. Michael didn't go. Scotty didn't go. You know, some of those guys didn't want to hang out with Dennis. So they had a, a velvet rope, and then they had girls come and stand by the bar. And they had a tryout for who was going to be able to go with them on the trip to Camden. We'll drop you off when we get back at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, whatever. They got back at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. So that practice was like a practice that um, Coach goes like, you know, guys, I think we're going to call practice off now. We couldn't even get through layup line. So they were laughing. They were horsing around and everything else. And uh, we went up and played New Jersey the next day, which was the worst team in the league, and lost to them. <laughs> wow. Wow. But it was worth the loss to have uh, yeah, bring Dennis back into the crew. Yeah. But that was uh, that was that group of guys. They really enjoyed each other's company, and uh, I gave them a lot of leash, uh, a lot of room to move. And we had a we had a great time. And they kind of did the documentary Last Dance on that group of guys mm. in that year. Amazing. Well, I'm about it. That's about it for me. That was great. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a, a pleasure meeting you. Pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you forever. So interesting. And I feel like there is a great sympathy between yes. uh, our jobs. It's a connection to the flow. It's the connection to being in the spirit, to having that feeling. They're right on. They're right in the moment. It's such a great feeling. It's such a great feeling. I find it addictive. I find it like that moment of when I come to the studio and it's like not really happening and I have patience and I'm willing to wait. But then when it happens, it's like, can you believe it? And it gets even a little scary and like, will it stay? Yeah. You know, how long can we keep it going? Because it's out of our control. I used to say, oh, did we peak too soon in this ball game? Can we maintain it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Cool. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, you bet. A pleasure.